Welcome to a special edition of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This edition of the show is only going to be covering the FTX crypto exchange collapse scandal. What happened is we had a program on November 13th, 2022, where we covered a lot of different topics. The whole show was about eight hours long. I decided that the FTX situation itself is important enough to separate out into its own episode. So what you're going to hear is the portion of that show that was about the FTX incident. And then the remainder of the show is going to be released separately within a few days. So that's why there's going to be two episodes here. I am recording this now after the fact, after we've done the whole episode, and I made the decision to split it up into two parts. So this way, if you want to hear about the FTX scandal, and if you're from outside of poker and gambling, and you're just really here for the FTX stuff, you can easily get to that without going through everything else we do. Of course, I do encourage you to listen to this show regularly. We do this show about once a week. We've been doing this for more than 10 and a half years at this point. We're coming close to 500 total episodes, and we've recorded thousands of hours of content over that time. This is a nonprofit site. We don't have any sponsors. We really do it as a service to the community. So if you're new, I encourage you to check us out, either episodes we've already done in the past, or check out our episodes which broadcast live going forward, as we always have. So here comes the FTX portion of the November 13th show. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you learn a lot. And we will continue covering this scandal next week as we have more news. So there is a major collapse of a major cryptocurrency exchange called FTX. Before I get into any of that, I need to explain to you what a cryptocurrency exchange is. Some of you know this already, but some of you don't, so I will explain it. Cryptocurrency can be sent back and forth between individuals very easily, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. Basically, it starts with a wallet. A wallet is what holds your cryptocurrency, and then you transfer your cryptocurrency out of your wallet and into the wallet of the individual or business that you want to send it to, or vice versa. And there's a lot of different cryptocurrency wallets out there. In fact, you can even have your own wallet offline that isn't connected to any kind of service that you fully control. Now, of course, if you lose the keys to that wallet, then you're screwed, but you can do it. However, an exchange goes beyond that because... Let's look at it very simply. Let's say you want to get cryptocurrency. Let's say you have none and you don't know anybody who has it that could send it to you. How would you get it? Well, you'd say you would buy it, right? Well, how do you buy it? Do you walk into the store and buy it? No, you have to buy it on what's known as an exchange. An exchange basically exchanges real currency for cryptocurrency. And then it also functions as a wallet. So it does two things. It holds your cryptocurrency, and it also allows you to buy in and cash out your cryptocurrency for real currency, also known as fiat currency. And without an exchange, then you would have a lot of trouble converting your cryptocurrency into real money when you need it. 
So what good is $3 million in Bitcoin if there's no way to convert that $3 million in Bitcoin into $3 million? So that's where the exchanges come in. The exchanges, of course, make money on these transactions, and that's why they're in business. And these exchanges are regulated in the countries where they exist. So there are legal exchanges in the U.S. where you can buy cryptocurrency, and then you can also use it to sell your cryptocurrency. And you can sometimes sell your cryptocurrency directly to the exchange, and sometimes you can sell it to other people on the exchange and then get real money that way. The exchanges also provide ways to load money onto the site and take money off the site. So you can transfer money from your bank to the exchange, then you have money in the site, then you can use the money to buy cryptocurrency, and then you can do the reverse. You can sell your cryptocurrency for money on the site, which you could then transfer to your bank. I have done this many times, being someone who gambles online, and anyone else who's gambled online for the last several years has probably done this as well. There's some people who don't, but most people use cryptocurrency now to get money on and off these online gambling sites, at least the ones offshore. So that's basically what an exchange is. There is a major, major problem that can occur, though. And that would be, what if the exchange goes down? What if the exchange fails? What if the exchange just outright cheats everybody and runs off with the money? Well, the last one you could say probably isn't going to happen because if it's licensed and regulated, you have to think there's some protections in place to prevent that from occurring. But where they're more in danger is the mishandling of the money or cryptocurrency that they're holding. And this isn't too different from what happened to Full Tilt Poker in the early 2010s. Let's think about what happened there. Full Tilt Poker, all the players on there were collectively holding balances of about $300 million. But where was the money? See, having a number on your screen saying you have $10,000 on Full Tilt doesn't mean anything unless they can really send you $10,000 when you ask for it. Well, in reality, even though there was $300 million worth of money that was in the balances combined on Full Tilt, there was only about $6 million in cash that they were holding because they had stolen the other $294 million. Where did it go? Well, they spent it in various ways. They spent it on marketing. They spent it on profit distributions to the other owners in order to hide the fact that they hadn't been profitable in a while. They were spending some on allowing people to deposit even though they didn't have a payment processor in place for a while. So when they couldn't get one, rather than stopping taking deposits, they continued to take deposits and just uh, didn't charge anyone for the moment. So they were covering all that and not telling anyone about it. So this is eating up the cash that they were holding for the players, when in reality, this cash should have been segregated and untouchable because it wasn't their cash. They're supposed to just be holding the cash. It'd be the equivalent of you coming over to my house and saying, hey, Todd, can you hold this $100,000 for me and then give it to me when I ask for it? And I say, okay. And then after you leave, I think, you know what would be nice? It'd be nice if I bought some things that I've been looking to buy for a while and I've got $100,000 sitting here. So yeah, I'll use it and I'll just guess that this guy won't come by and ask to pick it up anytime soon. Well, that'd be stealing, right? 
Well, same thing Full Tilt did here. Just because they're holding your money doesn't mean they can just take your money. But that's what they did. And when they got busted by the government for operating illegally, it was also found that they had stolen almost all the money. And the only reason anyone got paid is because the government ended up paying people after seizing Full Tilt and then selling it to Poker Stars in a deal where Poker Stars only bought it to get out of prosecution for what they had been doing. That's the only reason anyone got paid. Full Tilt had stolen all your money. And UB did the same thing. But we've talked about this before. This is a story from almost 12 years ago. But the way it can relate to cryptocurrency is that cryptocurrency exchanges are basically vulnerable to the same thing occurring. They are holding your crypto. They are holding your money. And you just have numbers on the screen representing what you have. But what if they are actually stealing it or spending it behind the scenes? They're not supposed to be, especially regulated ones, but you sometimes don't know what's really happening. And sometimes by the time you realize what's happening, it's too late. And then there's also the problem of what if they get hacked? There's been a lot of high-profile hackings of cryptocurrency exchanges, the first one being Mt. Gox, which was really the first major cryptocurrency exchange, and that went down because of a supposed hacking, but some people suspect was not a real hacking, was a staged hacking for them to simply steal all the money. Whatever it was, that meant the end of Mt. Gox. I really thought that was going to be the end of crypto, but crypto survived and other exchanges rose to take over its spot in the market. In recent times, there have not been any U.S. exchange disasters. FTX grew to be a pretty big exchange in a short period of time. And what was especially impressive about FTX was that FTX was not something that was created by an existing large company or by an older individual with a lot of capital. It was created by a guy in his 20s, a guy that a lot of people really looked up to and they thought that he was kind of like the king of crypto. His name was Sam Bankman-Fried, also known to some people as SBF. FTX came into prominence really, really quickly. The valuation of FTX went from zero to over $30 billion within the period of less than three years. So it was founded by Sam and a guy named Gary Wang in May of 2019. And it actually began within another company called Alameda Research, which was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried and some others in Berkeley, California. The reason it was called Alameda Research is because Berkeley is in Alameda County in California. So that's why they called it Alameda Research. It was founded in September 2017, uh, the main two people were uh, Sam Bagman-Fried and a woman named Tara McCauley. So FTX and Alameda Research were closely intertwined. FTX stood for Futures Exchange. It seemed to be growing and growing and growing. And it was becoming more and more of a major player in the crypto world. They developed a token called FTT. 
And this has been something some of the exchanges have been doing, where they make their own crypto token that they hope people will buy into, which can give them additional value. Binance has a similar token called BNB, and that's actually a uh, pretty major crypto right now, BNB. But FTX is called FTT, and that was doing quite well. The problem was that Sam Bankman-Fried was secretly transferring out value from FTX over to Alameda Research to secretly invest. And basically, he was treating the cryptocurrency and cash they were holding as money and crypto to play with. Very similar to what Full Tilt did, where they said, hey, we're holding this for customers, but we can use it. They weren't trying to outright steal with it, steal it. They weren't looking to take it to run off and disappear with it, just like Full Tilt wasn't. They were looking to take it to use for purposes that they felt were important to use, which, of course, they shouldn't be able to do because it's not their money. Just because you're holding it doesn't mean it's your money. It doesn't mean it's your crypto. But that's apparently what they did. Apparently, Sam Bankman-Fried put in back doors in the system, which allowed him to transfer out as much as $10 billion in cryptocurrency over to Alameda Research without the usual checks and balances within the company. So this way, others within the company weren't realizing what he was doing. So Alameda Research, which, remember, existed before FTX, but was a separate company, was getting funding for its various investments through customer funds. And you can imagine how that ended up turning out. The whole thing collapsed actually as a result of something from a competing exchange. Binance, which is really the uh, biggest exchange right now, Binance bought a lot of this FTT token. And they also had uh, purchased uh, a 20% stake in FTX about uh, six months after FTX was founded. So they were uh, already associated somewhat. They're not the same company at all. But uh, Binance had bought in somewhat into FTX, and they had a lot of the FTT token. Well, some problems started occurring at FTX in August of this year, and then it was just really all downhill from there. In August 2022 the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in the U.S., it's a government entity, they published a cease and desist letter accusing FTX of making false and misleading representations about FDIC insurance after FTX's president, Brett Harrison, tweeted something implying otherwise. So then they deleted the tweet And then Bankman-Fried clarified in a tweet that FTX doesn't really have FDIC insurance. Now, you may say, okay, big deal. That's just uh, them aggressively marketing something as an investment when it really isn't as protected as people think and as they're trying to say. But this was really foreshadowing what was to come. In September, in fact, near the end of September, September 26, FTX US, which is supposed to be separate from FTX. It's kind of like a a 
U.S. regulated spinoff of FTX, which takes U.S. customers. So regular FTX cannot take U.S. customers, just like regular Binance cannot take U.S. customers. You have to go to Binance U.S. So FTX U.S. was announced as the winner of the auction for the digital assets of Voyager Digital, which was a bankrupt crypto brokerage. And the value of the deal was approximately uh, $1.42 billion. And then it had to be approved by bankruptcy courts and Voyager's creditors. So it looked like FTX was actually bailing out other another crypto uh, firm that was having trouble. The next day, Brett Harrison, the president of FTX US, said he's going to be stepping down from an active role, but would stay on as an advisor. But they didn't announce a replacement for Harrison. And it wasn't really clear why he was leaving. In October, it was reported that Texas was investigating them for selling unregistered securities. But the shit really hit the fan in November. On November 2nd, it was reported that a lot of Alameda Research's assets were in FTT. Remember, that was the token that FTX issued. So a report by Coindesk which is a company which tracks crypto and puts out a lot of crypto-related articles, they said that there was $5.1 billion worth of FTT tokens in circulation and that Alameda's balance sheet had $3.66 billion of, quote, unlocked FTT, $2.16 billion of FTT collateral, and uh, and $292 million of locked FTT. So then... People started questioning this, going, wait a minute here. These two firms are really close. In fact, FTX uh, spawned from Alameda. And that Alameda kind of was a market maker on FTX early when it existed. And that there really was not any kind of regulatory oversight that would have normally prevented this sort of relationship from existing. So something was already looking kind of strange here that Alameda Research's assets were largely in this FTT token. Well, this kind of freaked out the CEO of Binance named Chang Peng Zhao. So on November 7th, the big bomb dropped. Chang Peng Zhao said that Binance is going to sell all of its holdings of the FTT token, which really freaked everybody out. Because if a huge holder of the token said, hey, you know what? Um, We're done with this. Then everyone else is like, huh? Wait a minute. So there's some rumors that something at FTX isn't quite right. And now the CEO of Binance, the guy who got the 20% stake in them early on, the guy who has so much of this FTT token doesn't want it anymore. Well, he's got to know something, so I don't want it anymore either. So that's what everybody decided. It didn't take a genius to decide that, right? You see that the Binance CEO announces that they're going to sell out their huge position on FTT. That must mean there's a problem with FTT, so you don't want to hold FTT either because you probably think that once the guy sells his position there, the price is going to go down, 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 and you're going to lose a lot of money. So then... Everybody decided that they're going to get rid of their FTT, and it created the 
run on the bank situation. So there is $6 billion worth of FTT that was sold. And guess what? FTX couldn't cover it. On November 8th, Zhao announced that Binance had entered into a non-binding agreement to purchase FTX because he said FTX is in a liquidity crisis. Basically, FTX can't pay what they owe because of everybody selling their FTT and wanting to get their money out of there. It wasn't just FTT. People sold their FTT and also sold uh, crypto they had on there and wanted to cash out. So it was basically a run on the bank, as I said. The price of FTT plummeted, and everybody also sold what crypto they had. They wanted to convert it all to cash and get out, which is exactly what I would have done. I didn't have anything in FTX, but had I, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have said, shit, I'm worried about FTX's future. I want to get everything off there. And that's what everybody did. So for a moment, it looked like Binance might rescue them. Around that time, Haralabob Vulgaris said he had a friend, and I assume it was really a friend and not uh, really him. But he offered that a friend that he'll vouch for has a big position on FTX, a lot of assets on there, that this person's assets total... One million dollars. So he said for 930000 he will basically be the middleman in this and you can get this person's $1 million of holdings on FTX in exchange for 930 k cash, which everyone laughed at because even with Binance saying they, they might bail them out, that's not worth 93%. <laughs> everyone really, really thought that FTX was in trouble and remember it was a non-binding agreement so Binance could change their minds. Well, Binance did change their minds. Binance looked at it and said, nope. They said that they're not going to acquire it because of the poor state of FTX's finances. So basically, they probably went through FTX's books and said, oh, shit, you guys are in horrendous trouble. Nope, not worth acquiring you. Goodbye. That was the end of that deal. Sam Bankman-Fried was assuring everybody in the U.S. not to panic because FTX U.S. was supposedly only a small percentage of all of FTX. Said that it's separated, that it has to be separated due to regulatory rules, and that FTX is fine. That even if FTX itself goes down, the U.S. portion will be okay. And that you can still withdraw, even though withdrawals were paused on FTX, which is a disaster. Anytime an exchange won't let you withdraw for the moment, uh, you can usually kiss the money goodbye. But he said, look, you can still withdraw on FTX US. They're still open right now. Go ahead and withdraw if you want. And this is not going to affect that. So that gave people in the US some hope. But no, they ended up filing for bankruptcy and apparently all the withdrawals that were done on FTX US failed, or at least most of them did. There is a poker fraud alert listener. I'm not going to tell you much about him because I don't want to violate his privacy, but a poker fraud alert listener who had a significant balance on FTX US and he tried to withdraw, but it was too late. He couldn't even connect to the site. It was having errors. 
and that was that. So by the time he came on there to withdraw it, I think he did put in a withdrawal and it wasn't processed yet, and then he just couldn't connect it all. So I don't believe he'll ever see his money. On November 10th, FTX approached another exchange called Kraken to be rescued. Also, Sam Bankman-Fried made several statements on that day, November 10th, which is just uh, three days ago, taking responsibility for the failure and said that uh, FTX was looking for capital to remain solvent. He also said that Alameda Research was done, that they were going to end operations and stop trading. The in-house legal and compliance teams on FTX also resigned on or by November 10th. Alameda Research was said to have owed around $10 billion to FTX, which was later discovered to have been secretly transferred out of FTX, as I mentioned. On November 12th, the Wall Street Journal said that Alameda Research's CEO, Caroline Ellison, who I'll tell you about more later, she's a very interesting story in herself, uh, that she disclosed to other Alameda employees that she, Gary Wang, and Nishad Singh knew that client deposits were transferred from FTX to Alameda. So that shows that at least three people at uh, Alameda and or FTX were aware of this besides uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. As we stand today, which of course isn't that much after this whole thing, it isn't looking good. And I think that anyone who had any funds on FTX or FTX US is going to be left with a big zero. But there's more. There was some weird, quote, unauthorized access and unauthorized breach and series of transactions that occurred uh, late on November 11th. $473 million in funds were removed from FTX. They had claimed that they were going to move these to offline cold storage, but didn't get around to doing it in time before these hackers got in and stole this uh, $473 million worth of remaining funds. <laughs> yeah. You think it was hackers? Hmm. I don't think it was hackers. The funds that were taken were mostly stable coins like Tether, and they were quickly exchanged for Ethereum. Stable coins, for those of you that don't know, are coins that are pegged to the U.S. dollar or some other fiat currency. We had another uh, story about crypto not too long ago about the failure of a stable coin called Luna, and that was a whole different mess. Tether is still currently surviving. It's still pegged to a dollar. The point of owning a stable coin is so you don't have to worry about the fluctuations in cryptocurrency, but as we learned from the Luna situation... Sometimes they're not so stable if they're mismanaged. So anyway, uh, they held a lot of tether, and apparently the supposed hackers stole the tether and uh, everything else that they could grab there and then exchanged them for Ethereum. And apparently this is very common when cryptocurrency is stolen when it's in stable coins that it is usually quickly exchanged for Ethereum. There was also the claim that the app itself was compromised and people were warned not to download or upgrade the FTX app because the upgrade that was being pushed 
was possibly infected with malware and possibly enabling the hackers to steal even more. So people were told to delete the apps and at the very least not to update. In addition, $1 to $2 billion worth of those funds that were secretly moved out of FTX into Alameda could not be accounted for even when they went through Alameda's books. There's just $1 to $2 billion worth of cryptocurrency missing. Uh-oh. It's bad enough to secretly move $10 billion out to a sister company to trade with and mess around with, but when one to two billion of that just outright disappears, that's even worse. A lot of people had their entire net worth or a very large amount of their net worth on FTX, which I would never do. I would be terrified to have any exchange holding a very large sum of money to me. And I'm not talking about people who don't have much and had maybe $10,000 on there and that was their net worth. I'm talking about people who had millions were reduced to being broke in one day or people who had hundreds of thousands, but several with millions or some even with tens of millions that they went from rich to broke all because of this. It's very sad. A little bit reckless to trust one company, but they figured, hey, it's, it's regulated. What's going to happen? This, of course, caused a crypto crash as well. And Bitcoin and Ethereum lost value just simply because this shook people's faith in cryptocurrency. It crashed from the 18,000s, or actually from the 20,000s down to 18,000s, then had a little bit of a recovery, and then a crash down into the 16s, I think all the way down to like 15,9 before recovering. Right now, Bitcoin is at uh, 16,700. As recently as November 5th, Bitcoin was at 21,300. The lowest point I see on this chart is 15,700 on November 9th. But I would not be surprised, and other analysts would not be surprised, if Bitcoin were to continue crashing and make it all the way down to about 10K as this situation continues to develop. It is generally assumed now that people are never going to see their money. If you had money on FTX, it's just gone. So what was the story with that hack? Well, there's various guesses. Some people think it was Sam Bankman-Fried himself that took what remained out to go live somewhere that he can't be extradited and at least he'll have uh, a lot of money to live on. Basically taking the remaining money and running. Some think there could have been other executives in the company who did this on the way out. There is a possibility it was hackers who were pissed off about this whole thing and found a way in and took it while they could. But I think that's the least likely. I think it was someone on the inside, whether it was SBF or someone else within the company. But I don't think we'll see that money again. Also keep in mind, they were based in the Bahamas. So there's also the question of, will any of these people be able to be apprehended? Apparently, a number of these FTX executives are scrambling around the world now 
trying to get somewhere that the U.S. can't get them. But we'll get to that in a little bit. The main two players in this whole thing are Sam Bankman-Fried and Caroline Ellison. Both of them have similar beginnings to their lives, and both of them are near the same age. Both of them come from parents who are academics. Sam Bankman-Fried was born in 1992, and he was actually born on the campus of Stanford University, presumably in the hospital there. And he was the son of Barbara Fried and Joseph Bankman. They were both professors at Stanford Law School. Also, his aunt, Linda Freed, is the dean of Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. His brother, Gabe Bankman Freed, is a former Wall Street trader and is the director of the nonprofit called Guarding Against Pan- pa- Pandemics. He was a very bright kid. He went to the Canada USA math camp as a kid for mathematically talented high school students. He went to MIT. He graduated with a degree of physics. He had a degree in physics and a minor in mathematics. Now that by itself, it's not easy to graduate with a degree in physics and a minor in math from MIT, where the competition is very tough. To even get into MIT is very tough. There's no question that Sam Bankman-Fried is a very bright guy. In the summer of 2013, he began working at a trading firm called Jane Street Capital. And then he became a full-time employee after he graduated. He started as an intern in 2013. He graduated in 14, became a full-time employee. He stayed there for three years. And in 2017, he moved to Berkeley, California. And he worked for a... He worked for the Center for Effective Altruism, which I will explain in a little bit because that figures into some of this stuff. And I'll tell you what effective altruism is. But he worked there as a director of development for about a month. And then he decided, you know what? I'm going to start my own company. Nothing against the Center for Effective Altruism. And in fact, he considered himself an effective altruist from then on, but he thought, I don't really want to work for them. I want to start my own company and make my own money and be an effective altruist that way. I guess I should stop and tell you what an effective altruist is. Effective altruism is a philosophical and social movement, and It advocates, quote, using evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible and taking action on that basis. What that really means is that you don't just blindly give to charity, but that you live your life around helping others. In fact, this show and some parts of this site, Poker Fraud Alert, could be considered a form of of effective altruism. Now, I won't say I'm an effective altruist because I'm not, but it's along those lines where this show and this site really exists to serve the public, to expose scammers, expose frauds, expose bad things that are happening in poker and gambling, 
and to help people out when they get into issues in these industries and to call attention where I feel attention needs to be called. And I don't really do this for personal gain. Occasionally, I can use the fact that I'm associated with a site to help myself if I'm getting screwed, but for the most part, I'm, I'm not doing this for any kind of personal gain. So it's along those same lines, except effective altruism is living your entire life that way, which I don't. You know, Like most people, I live my life for myself and for my family, and the exception really is running this site where uh, I, I'm doing kind of this as a community service to the poker and gambling communities. But effective altruism is revolving your entire life around that entire goal. And you may say, well, that sounds very noble. And yes, if you are really honestly dedicating yourself to that, it is. It's very selfless and noble. Effective altruists choose careers based upon the amount of good that the career achieves. And if they are in a career that isn't inherently doing good, then they take what money they make from their career and donate a lot of it to charities that maximize impact. Because not all charities are created equal. If they're working in something that isn't really doing a lot of good for the world in itself, such as trading crypto, then if you're making a lot of money, then you can use that money to charities that have a high ratio of actually utilizing their funds for good rather than administrative expenses and ones that are, are doing important work. Some effective altruists do what's called earning to give, which means that they spend almost all the money they earn on charity and not uh, on themselves. They just keep the bare minimum for themselves. Some causes for effective altruism can be global health and development, animal welfare, and the survival of humanity for the long-term future. So this all sounds great. The problem, the big problem with effective altruism is that it is often adopted by scammers. Because scammers in general love charity. A lot of times people will scam through charity. And scammers will sometimes donate to real charities in order to make themselves seem like great selfless guys. If scammers came off as greedy assholes who are self-serving, then you wouldn't trust them. Scammers need to do the opposite. Scammers need to seem very nice, very generous, very selfless, very helpful, very caring. Because then you let your guard down and you trust them, and then you're much more willing to give your money to them. If they act like selfish assholes, you're, you're not going to give anything to them. So scammers are notoriously generous and altruistic on the surface, and then you find out the ugly truth later. So unfortunately, effective altruism has been adopted by a lot of scammers who claim to be into that movement and then really are using it for a cover for their scamming. And it's similar in a way to how a lot of guys that claim they are male feminists actually hate women and or mistreat women behind closed doors and use the male feminism banner to fool women into trusting them. It's, it's a very similar concept. So I'm not saying all effective altruists are scammers, but the problem is so many scammers have gotten into it. So many scammers claim to be effective altruists that whenever I hear someone's an effective altruist, I always go, oh no, <laughs> I don't know if I could trust this person because it, it raises the chance a lot higher that they're scammers. So I don't know how Sam Bankman-Fried found himself 
over to the Effective Altruism Center and worked there for a month, but he did. And from that point on, he became an effective altruist. And I don't think he initially started doing it because he was a scammer or planned to be a scammer. But I also think that uh, it's an appropriate thing he got into because he ultimately became a scammer. And I, I do sometimes think that anyone who dedicates themselves that much to where their entire life is basically serving charitable causes, you do have to question, how can someone be that selfless? I mean, yes, there's some people out there like that, but you do have to question, is this real? Or is this just someone trying to put on a front to make themselves feel good or maybe to overcompensate? It's kind of like the old thing where they say a guy who's constantly talking about gay people and bashing gay people is probably secretly gay. It's the same thing here. A, a person who is supposedly dedicating their whole life to charity and to charitable causes and to giving, you sometimes have to wonder, why are they doing that? Is it possible that they're doing this either to fool themselves or to fool everybody else, and in reality, they're not very honest people? So uh, with Sam Bannequin freed we found out uh, which one it was. He got very into the effective altruism movement and that's been the case for the last five years and there's been a lot of focus on effective altruism which basically was ignored by most people until this whole thing happened i was aware of it because i know some poker players who claim to be effective altruists but most people had never heard of it before this whole recent ftx scandal and it's really gotten in the spotlight this effective altruism as a result because it is intertwined with this entire story anyway let's get back though to the other matters with ftx he started alameda research in november 2017 and he took with him tara mccauley who was also at the center of effective altruism he owned uh, 90 percent of Alameda research as of 2021. I'm not sure who owned the other 10%. I don't know if it was that Tara person or other people. In January 2018, Sam Bankman-Fried organized what's known as an arbitrage trade where he was trading like 25 million a day of Bitcoin because Bitcoin was trading higher in Japan than in America. So he just kept uh, buying it in America and selling it in Japan and making a lot of money. That was one of the smart things he did. He moved to Hong Kong in late 2018 and then founded FTX, which, as I mentioned, was going to be an exchange and was an exchange until the recent collapse. In uh, April 2019 is when that started. In April 2022... He got in contact with uh, Elon Musk asking if he could invest in Elon's uh, purchase of Twitter. But Musk was kind of suspicious of him. He didn't really know if uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was uh, reliable, if he really had the billions he said he did. So uh, this all never ended up happening And this came to light uh, somewhat recently about the whole thing with Elon Musk and Twitter. Sam Bankman-Fried was spending a lot of money in a lot of places. In fact, there's even an arena in Miami where the Miami Heat, the NBA team, plays. 
and it is called FTX Arena. So they bought the naming rights of that arena in Miami. He also was the second biggest donor to the Democratic Party for the 2022 midterm cycle. The only one who donated more money to the Democratic Party was George Soros, who, of course, is uh, renowned for being a gigantic Democratic donor. So for SBF here to be the second biggest donor was pretty amazing. And he claimed that if he stayed happy with the Democratic Party, that he would donate as much as a billion dollars for the 2024 election. Now, I have to think that probably had something to do with the fact that there really has not been very much movement in regulating these exchanges more tightly and in the government not really interfering very much with cryptocurrency during the Biden administration. Because if the Democratic Party thinks it might get a billion bucks out of this guy for their very contentious election, because as I said earlier, DeSantis is going to be pretty tough. And it's looking more and more likely he's going to be the nominee and not Trump. So if DeSantis is the candidate against Biden or really anybody else, the Democrats are going to have their hands full. So if he really would donate up to a billion dollars to the Democratic Party, that's really worth a lot to them. And uh, they do want to keep him happy. So I, I don't know this for sure, obviously, but I think there's a good chance that the reason we haven't seen a lot out of the Biden administration involving any kind of regulation of cryptocurrency has been to keep Sam Bankman-Fried happy. He was claiming that he plans to donate the great majority of his wealth to what he calls effective charities. Remember, that's uh, one of the tenets of effective altruism is to make sure to give your money to charities that spend the money wisely. But that he was going to donate most of his wealth to effective charities throughout the course of his life. He also founded his own charitable fund called the FTX Future Fund. And one of the founders of effective altruism itself was involved with this. This is a man named William McCaskill. However, everybody resigned from FTX Future Fund, including William McCaskill, after the collapse of FTX. They had given about $160 million in charitable grants by September 1st, 2022. SBF was also the second largest individual donor to Joe Biden in the 2020 election cycle. The only one who donated more was Michael Bloomberg, remember, who was also a uh, former Democratic presidential candidate that ended up not going anywhere, but uh, he donated the most to Biden individually, and then uh, SBF was the second. He did make some donations to Republicans. These were all very moderate Republicans or ones that were known to oppose Trump. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine, a senator, uh, Senator Mitt Romney, former presidential candidate of Utah, who's not moderate, but was anti-Trump, and uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Ben Sasse of Nebraska. But for the most part, the contributions from SBF went to Democrats. His parents were longtime Democrats, and uh, he was a Democrat, SBF himself. So he really believed in... Uh, the Democratic Party, which is why he was uh, pledging to donate up to a billion dollars to them in 2024. 
SBF did say that he would prefer the CFTC, which is the Commodity Future Trading Commission, to regulate and guide the crypto industry. But that's because they have a reputation for having relaxed regulations. He was afraid that if he did not support the CFTC regulating the crypto industry, that uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, would take over with regulating crypto, and they tend to be a lot more rigid. So you see that it's very possible that his donations here were not so much just because he supported Democrats, but, but because Democrats were in power and he wanted favorable treatment. And maybe he was hoping that they would steer the regulation of cryptocurrency to the CFTC if he kept them happy. And it may have happened if this whole collapse hadn't occurred. Sam Bankman-Fried is a vegan. He also doesn't look like someone who's rich. He has a slovenly appearance. I mean, if you think Bill Gates didn't look like a rich guy, you should see Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, he makes Bill Gates look downright dapper. I'm not even kidding. He has a frizzy, unkempt hairstyle. He's always wearing shorts. He just always looks like he's lounging around on laundry day. And while he has a very uh, expensive place there in the Bahamas, which is now up for sale for $40 million, he lives with uh, 10 roommates and, in fact, does most of his sleeping on a beanbag in the office where FTX is conducting their business. And he only slept like four hours a night. And I don't know how you can sleep in a room with nine other people who are awake at the time, but he would just say, okay, well, I'm going to grab my sleep now, <laughs> lie down on the beanbag and sleep around them. I've known people who can do that. I've known people who could just sleep in the room and how noisy it is they could just sleep through it. I've never been one of those people, but I've known people like that. He was very, very big on taking stimulants and, in fact, pressured everybody who worked with him to get on stimulants. He felt that stimulants really help with your ability to concentrate and really help with your motivation. And he felt that if you're not on stimulants, you're not going to do as good of a job. So not only was he constantly on stimulants, but everyone around him that worked with him supposedly was on them as well, that he pressured them into getting into that too. By the way, a lot of poker players also are on stimulants when they play poker tournaments. It has been found by certain poker players that they concentrate better when they take stimulants, even though they don't have any kind of attention problem. So there's a lot of illegal usage of stimulants in the poker community. And obviously that's not good. That has its downsides. And I don't do that, and I never would do that. But I have seen the other side of it. I took Xanax one time when I was really stressed from driving in traffic and terrible traffic to get to the bike for a tournament. And I felt so stressed. I was like, you know, I've got to take something to calm down. So I I took a Xanax, and then I played terribly. I was way too relaxed. I couldn't concentrate. It just, I was in the total wrong frame of mind. And needless to say, I didn't cash, and I said never again. I'm never going to take Xanax again before a tournament. So I can actually understand why some poker players are taking stimulants, 
before tournaments because it does the opposite of what Xanax does. So, you know, it's possible it, it helps you play better, but that's not a good thing to abuse. Anyway, Sam Bankman-Fried was abusing stimulants very much. And apparently one of the side effects of stimulants is that it can sometimes encourage risk-taking. And that might have been partially what was to blame for what ended up occurring. So maybe the stimulants, if he wasn't taking them, none of this would have happened. Because they were making money. It's not like the business was managed poorly. This wasn't a matter of a business that was just run into the ground and then scammed to get out of it. This was a business where he just stole $10 billion that was on deposit and sent them over to the sister company to go uh, gamble with in crypto. Not gamble in casinos, of course, but to gamble in crypto. And then it didn't go well. And then when uh, there were some questions being raised about this FTT token and how much it really should be worth, and Binance kind of panicked about it and decided they're going to let go of their position, then it created the run on the bank, and here we are today. So had he not done that, had he not snuck the $10 billion out of there, it would still be operating fine, and he'd still be making a lot of money. But this is what can happen when you're making poor and immature decisions as the CEO of a major company that has a major impact on the crypto world when it crashes, and unfortunately a major impact on a lot of people's lives. A few more things about FTX. FTX got a number of celebrities to promote it. So they had uh, Tom Brady and his wife, and they're now divorcing, not about this, but uh, they were heavily promoting it. And they got various other celebrities to publicly state that they were investing with FTX. And this is actually pretty effective because crypto is something that makes some people nervous if they don't know it that well. Or even if they do, they can still be kind of nervous. But, you know, you hear that Tom Brady's getting involved and other mainstream figures. You go, okay, you know, I, I understand this might be a paid endorsement, but, you know, still they're putting their name on it. This The whole thing's regulated. It, it's got to be okay, right? So it's understandable why people would think this. There was even an ad with Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And ironically, the Larry character was proven right for once. Listen to this. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Then it says, don't be like Larry as it plays the Curb Your Enthusiasm music. And it says, don't miss out FTX, the next big thing. So the joke here is that Larry David, who's always on the wrong side of these things in the show is saying, eh, I don't want to get involved, and I'm never wrong. And, of course, you're supposed to do the opposite of Larry here, but turns out Larry was right. He's the only one who saw it coming. But there are a lot of ads like this, a lot of celebrity endorsements. And I don't think Tom Brady had his net worth or anywhere near that in FTX. It's even possible that he didn't really invest his own money there, and he was just given assets to invest in FTX as his payment. 
So I'm not worried for Tom Brady. This became pretty mainstream. I mean, there's an arena named after it. So that's pretty much all you need to know there. But I'm going to read you some tweets from SBF. Then we'll get into some other elements of this entire thing. There's many facets to the story. On November 10th, SBF dropped a long series of tweets. I think like 22 parts. But, you know, tweets are pretty short, so it'll go pretty fast as I read it to you. Number one, I'm sorry. That's the biggest thing. I fucked up and should have done better. Number two, I also should have been communicating more very recently. Transparently, my hands were tied during the duration of the possible Binance deal. I wasn't particularly allowed to say much publicly, but of course, it's on me that we ended up there in the first place. Number three. So here's an update on where things are. And he puts in parentheses, this is all about FTX International, the non-US exchange. FTX users are fine in the US. Uh, No, but (laughs) let's go on. Treat all of these numbers as rough. There are approximations here. Number four. FTX International currently has a total market value of assets and collateral higher than client deposits. It moves with prices. But that's different from liquidity for delivery, as you can tell from the state of withdrawals. The liquidity varies widely from very to very little. I don't quite know what very to very little means. I think he means very much from very to very little. But okay, let's stop here. He's claiming in number four that FTX has enough assets to where if they liquidated everything right then that they could cover all client deposits and everyone could get their money. Was that true? No, but that was his claim. He tried to say that uh, they just don't have it liquid. They just haven't uh, sold all their assets, but provided the value of these assets doesn't crash, he's talking, the assets being crypto assets, of course, that the, provided this doesn't all crash, that he could liquidate it all and then uh, they could cover everything. So don't panic, they're not broke, which was not true. Number five, the full story here is one I'm still fleshing out every detail, but as of a very high level, I fucked up twice. The first time, a poor internal labeling of bank-related accounts meant that I was substantially off on my sense of user's margin. I thought it was way, way lower. Six, my sense before leveraged zero times U.S. liquidity ready to deliver 24 times average daily withdrawals. Now, what he's trying to say there is that... Uh, not only were they not leveraged, but uh, that they had a lot of liquidity that was uh, 24 times what was withdrawn a day. So while they didn't have everything liquid of what people had assets on there, that even if withdrawals increased by 24 times, they could still easily cover it. But that, that was what he thought before he's claiming. He's saying actual leverage 1.7 times, not zero times, and liquidity 0.8 times Sunday's withdrawals. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem was that Sunday's withdrawals were after everyone realized they were in trouble and, and had to run on the bank. So that wasn't so much his wrong sense of what they held. It was that uh, they just couldn't cover people's withdrawals and there was a run on the bank. Also, I'm sure he knew everything was going on and yeah, he lies a lot of times in this whole list of tweets, but let's go on. He says, because of course, when it rains, it pours. We saw roughly $5 billion of withdrawals on Sunday, the largest by a huge margin. Seven. So I was off twice, which tells me a lot of things, both specifically and generally, that I was shit at. And a third time, 
in not communicating enough. I should have said more. I'm sorry I was slammed with things to do and didn't give updates to you all. What do you mean slammed with things to do? <laughs> These are some pretty big things you were doing and that were happening that you didn't give updates about. You could have taken a few minutes to tweet that out. What the hell does that mean? Eight. And so here where we are, which sucks, and that's on me, I'm sorry. So he's saying he's sorry over and over, which of course is very empty. Number nine. Anyway, right now, my number one priority by far is doing right by users, and I'm going to do everything I can to do that, to take responsibility and do what I can. Number 10. So right now, we're spending the week doing everything we can to raise liquidity. I can't make any promises about that, but I'm going to try and give anything I have if that will make it work. 11. There are a number of players who we are in talks with, LOIs, term sheets, etc. We'll see how that ends up. Number 12. Every penny of that and the existing collateral will go straight to users unless or until we've done right by them. After that, investors old and new and employees who have fought for what's right in their career and who weren't responsible for any of the fuck-ups. So he's basically saying, as soon as we get money, we're going to shoot this out to those who have withdrawals pending. And then after that, we'll pay investors. And then after that, we'll, play, we'll pay employees who didn't have to do with any of this. That the ones who will get paid last are the ones who had to do with this problem. 13. Because at the end of the day, I was CEO, which means that I was responsible for making sure that things went well. I ultimately should have been on top of everything. I clearly failed in that. I'm sorry. Number 14. So what does that mean going forward? I'm not sure. That depends on what happens over the next week. But here's some things I know. Number 15. He's, he's numbering all these, by the way. This isn't my numbering. 15. First, one way or another, Alameda Research is winding down trading. They aren't doing any of the weird things that I see on Twitter, and nothing large at all, and one way or another, soon they won't be trading on FTX anymore. 16. Second, in any scenario which FTX continues operating, its first priority will be radical transparency. Transparency, transparency it probably should have always been giving. Been giving. Giving as close to on-chain transparency as it can, so that people know exactly what's happening on it. Yeah, like the $10 billion you swiped from it? <laughs> I don't think you wanted transparency there, did you? You didn't even want your own employees seeing that. 17. All of the stakeholders would have a hard look at FTX governance. I will not be around if I'm not wanted. All the stakeholders, investors, regulators, users, would have a large part to play in how it will be run. Solely trust. 18. But all of that isn't what matters right now. What matters right now is trying to do right by customers. That's it. 19. A few other assorted comments. This was about FTX International. FTX US, the US-based exchange that accepts Americans, was not financially impacted by this shit show. Uh, yes, it was. It's 100% liquid. Not true. Every user could fully withdraw. Updates on this in the future are coming. Yeah. The updates were not good. 20. At some point, I might have more to say about a particular sparring partner, so to speak. But, you know, glass houses. For, so for now, all I'll say is, well played, you won. He's now playing victim here. Like someone he's been in a rivalry with or someone who he has an issue with that they caused this in a way. But he's not going to say who they are because of glass houses. He'll just say, well played, you won. 21. Not advice of any kind in any way. I was not very careful with my words here and do not mean any of them in a technical or legal sense. I may well not have described things right, though I'm trying to be transparent. I'm not a good dev and probably misdescribed something. That's basically covering his ass further, that if 
You try to use any of this against him later, he'll say he was inaccurate. 22, finally, I sincerely apologize. We'll keep sharing updates as we have them. Well, you know what, guys? Sam Bankman-Fried said he's sorry. So even though he ruined many lives and drained people's net worth because he stole $10 billion, not million, but billion, he stole $10 billion out of FTX and transferred it to be played with in crypto investments, and then everything collapsed. He said he's sorry, so we can forgive him. (laughs) Remember, everybody, he sincerely apologizes. Everybody makes mistakes. Some people's mistakes cost $10. Some people's mistakes cost $10 million. Some people's mistakes cost $10 billion. So with him, it was a B. Oh, well. Let's not be too judgmental, folks. We have to understand he's human. Well, FTX US turned out not to be very healthy. Even though you could technically hit the withdraw button for a little while after that, the withdrawals didn't get processed. They were pending. And then the website was crashing. The app was getting errors. Nobody got their money. And then came the announcement that there was an unauthorized access into the FTX system and somehow $473 million worth of crypto disappeared. Very convenient. Furthermore, FTX US declared bankruptcy. Remember, it was supposed to be okay? Remember, they could cover all the withdrawals? So somehow FTX declared bankruptcy. So that was the end of that for FTX, FTX US. All of this was over. But of course, the story is not over. FTX is over, but the story's not over. On November 11th, just one day after saying that FTX US was totally in good shape, he tweeted the following. Hi, all. Today I filed FTX, FTX US, and Alameda for voluntary Chapter 11 proceedings in the US. I'm really sorry again that we ended up here. Hopefully things can find a way to recover. Hopefully this can bring some amount of transparency, trust, and governance to them. Ultimately, hopefully it can be better for customers. Number three, this doesn't have anything. uh, Number three, this doesn't necessarily have to mean the end for the companies or their ability to provide value and funds for their customers chiefly and can be consistent with other routes. Ultimately, I'm optimistic that Mr. Ray and others can help provide whatever is best. Number four, I'm going to work on giving clarity on where things are in terms of user recovery ASAP. Number five, I'm piecing together all the details, but I was shocked to see the things unravel the way they did earlier this week. I will soon write up a more complete post on the play-by-play, but I want to make sure that we all get it right when I do. Then that night was the supposed hacking. So what has he said since then? Well, there was one other series of tweets. He made two tweets tonight. You ready for them? They were very, very informative tweets. They they really cleared the air after two days of silence following the, quote, hacking and the bankruptcy filing that he had previously said the day before wouldn't happen and everybody's money being gone and FTX not working anymore. In fact, even on his own profile, it says FTX.US works in US. But what did he tweet out tonight, six hours ago? You ready? It's a two-part tweet. Number one, what? Number two, H. (laughs) 
I didn't read that incorrectly. You didn't hear it incorrectly. Number one, what? That's the entire tweet. And then the follow-up tweet connected to it, number two, the letter H. That's it. Nothing further. I don't know if it means what the hell, what H. (laughs) I don't know if he was doing this in a state of heavy drug use and he was just kind of banging on his phone. You ever texted something when you were like really, really tired and then you wake up and you see you just texted gibberish? I've done that before. And I don't even drink or do drugs. So I can imagine someone who's really high on drugs at the moment could pick up their phone and text this. There's also been some theories that he's trying to make it look like he was hacked. And this is just a piece of evidence he's trying to drop there that he doesn't have control of his own account with these gibberish tweets. But yeah, that's all, that's all he's tweeted in the last two days has been what an H that makes Donald Trump's weird Fifi tweet. Remember that tweet where he talked about Fifi, C-O-V-F-E-F-E? That makes that seem downright coherent. Because <laughs> at least that was part of a sentence and it just ended with Fifi. It kind of looked like Trump like fell asleep in the middle of the tweet. Here, the whole tweet is just what, and then the next tweet, H. But he, he did number them correctly. Number one, what? Number two, H. <laughs> By the way, the what tweet has 8,806 retweets and, tw- and 16,000 responses, and the H tweet has over 2,000 retweets and 5,000 responses. It's a lot of responses to saying literally nothing. The saga gets weirder and weirder. Also, there was a private jet that was seen flying out of the Bahamas to Argentina. And it was a private jet that was known to be used by FTX. So was this really Sam Bankman-Fried fleeing to Argentina? Well, maybe... But there's also theories that it was not him, but other executives of the company or other executives of Alameda Research. So it may not have been him. There were some saying that they thought it was him. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss Caroline Ellison. Caroline Ellison is a very interesting figure, to say the least. I believe she's 28 years old. She looks younger than 28, but not really in a good way. <laughs> she has kind of a girlish look to her. But she also has the look and the mannerisms of a female nerd, a very stereotypical female nerd in every way you could think. Like if she was a character in a movie, you'd say, oh, wow, that's a very believable female nerd. Like a lot more believable than in most movies where they just take like a very attractive actress and slap some glasses on her and she's supposed to be a nerd. Nope, that's not the case with Caroline Ellison. Caroline Ellison has homely facial features. She has big glasses. She has a nasally voice and awkward mannerisms. She has greasy hair and a disheveled appearance. So all these elements that you would expect of a really, really nerdy, socially awkward female. And she was the CEO of Alameda Research. 
she met Sam Bankman Freed while working at Jane Capital. She also hails from two parents who are in academia. So they both have a very similar background. She is the daughter of Glenn Ellison and Sarah Fisher Ellison. Glenn Ellison is an economist. He's a professor at MIT. Caroline's mother, Sarah Fisher Ellison, is also an economist at MIT. She graduated from Stanford University in 2016 with a bachelor's in mathematics. So just like Sam Bankman-Fried, very smart. She's a very smart girl, Caroline Ellison. Not easy to get into Stanford. Not easy to graduate with a math degree from Stanford. After graduation, she got a job at Jane Street, and she met Sam Bankman-Fried. I don't know if the two of them had a romantic relationship or were having sex at that point. They eventually did, but I don't know when it began. But she was at Jane Street for 19 months as a junior trader. And then in March of 2018, Sam Bankman-Fried got her to move over to Alameda Research, which was only a few months old at that point. In August of 2022, she became the sole CEO of Alameda Research after co-CEO Sam Trabuco stepped down. They had been running it together, and he left in August. She put some tweets up at the time praising him. I don't know the full details about why this uh, Sam Trabuco stepped down. She also claims to be an effective altruist, and she was 100% aware that the $10 billion that was transferred out of FTX that were customer funds were being used by her company, and she had no problem with it. So she was very, very much an accomplice in this scam. Sam Blank, Sam Bankman-Fried transferred the money out of FTX, and then she as CEO received it and traded with it. So it's not like the money appeared and SBF lied to her how it got there. She, she was very aware of it and said the two others were aware as well. So she had no problem with that. If you Google her and you see the pictures of her, you'll see what I was talking about regarding her appearance. And this has actually spawned a side debate on the internet whether it is fair to make jokes about her appearance. Because a lot of people, especially men, were making jokes about how she's ugly and how how she dresses and her mannerisms and a lot of insults about her that don't have to do with the scam and have to do more with her personality and her appearance. And a lot of people are saying that's not right. You shouldn't insult someone for how they look. But the way I see it is this. She became a well-known figure to the public because she was an accomplice in one of the biggest scams in American history. So if you are guilty of such a scam... And it appears that she is. She hasn't been convicted of it. For everything I can see, it appears that she is. Then you can't complain if people are going to make fun of your appearance at that point. That, that's the least of your problems at that point, is people calling you ugly. You really lose the right to complain about how the internet's treating you if they know you because of a major scam. Now, if she were a victim of the scam and people were making fun of her, then I would totally be on the side, you should stop making jokes about her appearance 
because she doesn't deserve this. But if she's in the news because she was one of the scammers, then yeah, <laughs> go ahead and joke about her appearance. I don't think that scammers deserve such respect. I'm going to play you some clips of her where she was talking about her trading. This is, of course, before the scandal. I'm not sure where this interview was from, but she was being interviewed. And you'll be able to just hear from the way she speaks what I mean about her mannerisms. You'll get to hear where she says that even though she majored in math, that she doesn't use her math at all in her crypto trading, which is kind of funny to think about given what happened. I uh, talked to Sam, who had just started Alameda, and uh, he convinced me that it was an exciting opportunity. So, uh, yeah, absolutely could pull it off without my math degree. (laughs) Use very little math. Yeah, trying to think of a good example of a trade where I've lost a ton of money. Um, well, I don't know. I probably don't want to go into specifics too much yeah, with that. <laughs> you like her laugh? <laughs> like, it really is like out of a movie. Like if they made this character in a movie, I'd say, well, first of all, congrats in finally making a realistic nerd character. But second, come on, you guys are too over the top. I mean, yeah, it's good you didn't just get a hot chicken put glasses on her, but come on now. I mean, this is too far. I mean, even even the nerdy lab. <laughs> Let's listen to that again. I probably don't want to go into specifics too much yeah, with that. <laughs> <laughs> into a ditch just plan she needs a golden calculator to divide the time it takes to look inside and realize now we thought it was a good bet but it went the wrong way and that's kind of like a thing that can happen a lot and you have to say like well you know maybe you reevaluate uh, and say like oh maybe this wasn't a good idea after all <laughs> yeah you think so this is before all this happened Apparently, the FTX complex in the Bahamas, that penthouse that they bought, it consisted of 10 young people, all like late 20s, early 30s, five male and five female, all of whom were intertwined in romantic and sexual relationships with one another. It's not clear if they were all polyamorous, but I know that Caroline and SBF were polyamorous. Yes, that Nerdy girl was polyamorous. Now, you might wonder, with five males and five females, were these all heterosexual relationships? And I don't know. But I do know that Caroline was not involved in any kind of lesbian action. Caroline wrote on her Tumblr, which I'm going to read you from shortly, that she is a straight female. And even though she does seem to have a fetish for being physically overpowered by men... She actually wrote that. Uh, It seems like her only sexual interest comes in men and not in women. So I I believe these were just kind of like almost like partner swaps where they were kind of trading off who was dating each other there. Let me get to the Tumblr posts and you'll get an idea of what was in Caroline's head. On November 12th, a Tumblr that she operated was located. It was called World Optimization worldoptimization.tumblr.com. It's now gone, but it has been retrieved from the archives. 
and people were posting copies of things she wrote on it. It definitely was hers because people dug into it and found old posts from a long time ago that you can't face that. You can't fake that on Tumblr where she was identifying what her Twitter account was. And it was her actual Twitter, which is at Caroline Capital, exactly as it sounds. So this definitely was hers. Some people thought maybe it was fake, but no, no, that was totally her Tumblr. So here are some segments from her Tumblr. There's a lot of material there. I, I would spend hours and hours reading it all, so I'm not going to, but I'll read you some interesting parts. Here's something she wrote in response to what one of her commenters said. She said, nothing against this post in particular, but it reminds me that I find it amusing how boy positivity posts on Tumblr always end up taking this cute, infantilizing tone that elides what is actually attractive about men. Here's what I think are some, quote, cute boy things. So I don't read Tumblr, but I guess she didn't like what other women on Tumblr were saying what they liked about men. So here's what she thought were cute to her in, quote, boys. Controlling most major world governments. What? (laughs) Was she into, like, Kim Jong-un or something? I don't know, but that that's one of her cute boy things. Then, being responsible for many important inventions and scientific discoveries, spatial reasoning abilities, low-risk aversion. <laughs> yeah, well, now you know why she liked SBF, low-risk aversion. <laughs> and then, the one I mentioned before, sufficient strength to physically overpower you. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So she's putting right on her Tumblr right there that if you are a guy who is physically strong enough to overpower her, that she's going to find that attractive. Now, I would think that would really be most guys because she's not a big woman. Caroline looks like she's like five foot two and 110 pounds. Something along those lines. A very small girl. So this isn't like a girl who's uh, 5'10 and works out all the time and, and is muscular and is big boned. And you're like, oh, that's a pretty strong chick. I, I don't know if I could overpower her. It's not like that. Th- this is a, a very small woman. So I have to think most dudes could do that. But she, she finds that very attractive. Also, low risk aversion. You know, like stealing $10 billion to secretly invest. That's low risk aversion for sure. Maybe that's why she had sex with uh, SBF. And if, if you're controlling a major world government, I, I guess even Trump. I, I mean, she was a Democrat. I could see from her other writing, but maybe I mean Trump was controlling the most major world government for four years. Definitely Biden. I guess she'd have sex with Biden. Hmm. She went on to write, if you are a boy who is driven to succeed at ambitious goals, you are valid. If you are a boy who arrives at opinions through lo- logical reasoning, you are valid. If you are a boy with the confidence to advocate for unconventional ideas and take actions based upon them, you are valid. The you are valid thing's kind of weird, but she's basically saying, I like you if you're like this. Okay, now let's listen to her write about polyamory. When I first started my foray into poly, I thought of it as a radical break from my trad past, meaning traditional. But to be honest, I've come to decide that the only acceptable style of poly is best characterized as something like Imperial Chinese Harem.
I don't know what that is. I don't know what Imperial Chinese harem is. I guess she wants to be part of a harem. Okay. None of these non-hierarchical, none of this non-hierarchical bullshit. Everyone should have a ranking of their partners. People should know where they fall on the ranking and there should be vicious power struggles for the higher ranks. Hashtag personal, hashtag crypto social conservative blogging. What? I don't understand the crypto social conservative blogging. Polyamory is not part of being a social conservative. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. But anyway, let, let's go through the other stuff, though. So she is into polyamory. She thinks the only acceptable style of polyamory is like, quote, imperial Chinese harem. So it really sounds like that she wants to be one of several girls that's competing for a male's affection. And then she says, none of this non-hierarchical bullshit that everyone should have a ranking of their partners. So she actually wants to know where she stands. So she wants to be with a dude who has five girlfriends and she wants to know, okay, I'm number three and I want to aspire to be number one. I don't want to just be told I love you all equally. I want to know which of your girls do you like better than me and which ones do you like worse than me so I can work hard to beat these other two girls and become your number one. Like, I think that's what she was saying here, which is weird to say the least. <laughs> uh, it, what's funny is she doesn't really talk about how she wants to be with several men at once. It kind of sounds like that she wants to be one of several girls in a harem and know her rank there. You'd think at least if she's into poly that she would want the other side of it. You'd think that she'd want to be able to be with several men. And maybe she was doing that too, but it kind of sounds like that's not what she's really into, which is unusual. Though Those who are into polyamory really want it both ways. They want it to where they can be with multiple people and uh, to, in return, their partner can also be with multiple people. And polyamory, I've talked about it before on the show, but it is often confused with swinging and it's not the same thing because swinging is just sexual swinging is where you have a partner whether it's a girlfriend a boyfriend a husband a wife whatever you you have some kind of steady romantic partner and that's always going to be your steady romantic partner but then you will have sex with other people as will your partner as kind of like empty sex you're just doing to have fun and then at night you're going to go home and be together with each other so you're never going to leave each other for these other people. These people are just uh, sexual partners you have on the side. Sometimes you'll just do it together, whatever it is. But that this is something that doesn't interfere with the romantic part of your relationship. Whereas polyamory is actually having romantic love for multiple people at once. And there are some people who believe in this and think that it's a more evolved way of thinking and that it's a better way to conduct relationships, that monogamy is antiquated, and that polyamory is really the better way to operate, that just uh, monogamy has been hammered into our heads by traditionalists over the generations, when really the better way to do things by human nature is polyamory, so says these people. But here's the problem. The human mind is really not built to handle polyamory because almost all human beings have some jealousy in them. 
And also, relationships have various stages. So what will happen in a typical relationship, I'm talking about one without polyamory, is that there will be the very exciting beginning where the new person is someone you're getting to know, and because they're new, they're exciting, and you're exciting to them, and all you can think about is this person. The, the, the whole thought of them dominates your life. You want to spend every moment with them. You're having a lot of sex. It, that, that's the beginning. Then once you enter kind of more of a stable relationship, that starts to go away, and you get more used to them, and they get more used to you, and the excitement dies down a lot, but it is replaced by a more stable feeling of love and attachment to where it's easier to get over not being with someone that you're with during that exciting phase of the beginning. Let's say that just breaks apart for whatever reason. You'll be kind of hurt at the moment, but you'll get over it pretty quickly. Whereas if you're in a long relationship where you two both love each other, it can take a long time to get over it. So that's where the uh, the feelings of excitement are replaced by a more stable, loving feeling. And that's the typical trajectory of a relationship. Well, the problem when you introduce polyamory into the situation is that when the new person shows up, it's only natural to be much more excited about the new person than you are about your current partner. Because you've been with your per- current partner for a while. The excitement's kind of gone away. And... Uh, the new person, they're new, they're exciting. So you're glowing, you're excited about them. You're talking to them all the time on the phone and texting with them all the time and meeting with them and having sex with them. And it's, it's like you've got a new relationship all over again, but you've also got your old relationship. And the existing partner can't just sit there and watch this and have no emotion about it. It's just not possible for just about all human beings. There's probably a few human beings who can do it, but most people see this and it's kind of hurtful, even if you know you can do it yourself, even if you know you can go find someone and do the same thing, it still feels kind of crappy. You're looking at the person that you have this stable love for, and you're watching them get so excited about another person romantically that is not you. And even going and doing the same thing yourself is not really going to alleviate that pain. It can make you forget about it a little bit, but it's not going to make it go away. Also, this prevents people from working on their relationship because instead of trying to get the person you're with to communicate with you and to where you talk things out and come up with compromise and keep the relationship healthy, you just find what you're missing in your current relationship in new people. So instead of fixing what's wrong, you just find another person to fill that hole. And again, that doesn't make for a healthy relationship. So the problem is human beings really aren't built for this. Human beings are actually emotionally built for monogamy. And even if you have the sexual desire for non-monogamy, from a relationship standpoint, you really can't do it without all kinds of problems arising. Sometimes I'll see people get into polyamory when their existing relationship sucks and it's on the way out anyway, and it's like a last-ditch attempt to save it but I don't ever see that working. And I really don't see many people who are polyamorous staying with one partner for very long before the whole thing collapses. I'm not saying there's none. I'm not saying it's never successful, but it's something that 
is not what a lot of people make it out to be. A lot of people make out polyamory to be something more enlightened, something that just isn't encumbered by outdated beliefs. But instead, it's it's really something that goes against, directly against, the way human emotions work. So I just don't think it's something that is doable in the long term. In fact, I believe swinging is actually more viable than polyamory. At least with swinging, if both people can separate the sexual element from the romantic element enough, uh, that can actually work. It still wouldn't work with a lot of people for the same reasons, but at least there they can rationalize, okay, we're just never going to have feelings for the other people we have sex with, and if we both stick to this, it can work. But with polyamory, you're supposed to have feelings for the other person. So I, I've i seen a number of poker players get into this. Justin Bonomo is the best-known one into poly, polyamory, but I, I've seen some females say that they're into it too, and I just don't understand it. I just don't think this is something that is doable. Anyway, uh, she's got an even weirder view on it, as I said, because it looks like she doesn't even want to date multiple guys at once. She just wants to be part of a harem. I don't know why a Chinese harem, but... Here's some other parts of her Tumblr. This is her attempting to get dates in Hong Kong. Shameless self-promotion. This is when she lived in Hong Kong before they moved the headquarters to Bahamas. If you're interested in dating me or know anyone who might be a good fit, I'm currently looking for people to date. Open to in real life dates in Hong Kong for the next month, in real life dates in the Western Hemisphere starting in a month or so, Zoom dates, email conversations, Google Docs, and probably other stuff. (laughs) Wait a minute. Okay, I understand the in-real-life dates in Hong Kong and the Western Hemisphere dates in the next month or so. The Western Hemisphere is pretty big, though. Like uh, That's kind of a weird thing to say also. But how about the Zoom dates, email conversations, and Google Docs? What? I've never heard of dating through Google Docs. Believe it or not, I've heard of Zoom dates in 2020. And keep in mind, this is written in 2020 because this was uh, – or, or maybe 2019. I, th- I think it was 2020. It, it may have been during COVID. I, I don't see the date on there. But – During 2020, there were Zoom dates because people were afraid to get together in person because of COVID, and yet they were lonely. Like That was a tough time to be single in 2020. I wasn't, but people who were were pretty miserable. And some people would do Zoom dates where they would not see each other in person. These are people who never even met, like just people they'd meet each other on dating sites and do Zoom dates, which there's no way I would ever do that. That's just so weird. Like if you can't see the person with you, like, why have a date? If you, you can't see and touch them, why have a date? But they would have Zoom dates then. I, I heard of that. So I guess she's not the only one to say that. But email conversations, okay, you know, get to know each other, fine. But Google Docs, like, what does that mean? What are Google Docs? I know what Google Docs are, but how, do you, how does that relate to dating? Zoom dates, email conversations, Google Docs, and probably other stuff. Then she writes, I think people's impressions of whether they'd be into me based upon my Tumblr are quite predictive, maybe relevant info. And then she has two bullet points. First one, 26-year-old woman, straight. That's what makes me think it's 2020 because I think she's 28 now. And then the second one, ultimately looking for a long-term monogamous relationship, but kind of open to whatever right now, given that my location and life are somewhat in flux. Hashtag personal. Now, I think this is before the polyamory began. But she did say she was straight. That's important. Well, it's not really important. But 
when ascertaining what her dating life and sex life was like. I don't think it involved women. So even if you had a fantasy of uh, some really, really, really nerdy, greasy-haired girl having lesbian sex, uh, don't bother picturing it here, because apparently she was straight, and from her other post mentioned men that physically overpower her, and I guess that's what she wanted. It is interesting she's saying that people's impressions of whether they'd be into her based on her Tumblr are predictive, basically saying, if, if you think you'd like me from what I'm writing in my Tumblr, you're probably right. If you think you wouldn't like me from my Tumblr, you're probably right too. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Some people say the opposite. Some people say, you know, don't look at how I act on the internet. I'm very different in person, people will say. But not her. She's like, no, my Tumblr's me. If you like me on Tumblr, you're going to like me in real life. If you don't like me in Tumblr, you won't like me in real life. Interesting. Let's go to the next one. I wonder when I'll get over the instinctive reaction whenever I finish a call with a CEO of another company or something of, oh, thank God, I think I fooled them into thinking I'm a real adult. (laughs) Basically admitting she wasn't qualified. She kind of fooled them into believing that uh, she knew what she was doing. Here's another one. Some thoughts on leadership. I used to think something like, it's bad to be overconfident, and people who say things about how leaders should be confident are just promoting bad epistemic norms. Now I think more like, there are lots of situations where no one really knows what to do, and you need to make a decision. Lots of people's instinct in these situations is to ask the person in charge, but it turns out the person in charge often doesn't really know what to do either. And in leadership, in these cases, means not panicking or doing nothing or trying to find a person even more in charge, but instead coming up with your best guess, even if you're super uncertain, and stating confidently and decisively, let's do X. (laughs) That's a big word salad to say, if you're a leader and you don't really know what you're doing, just pick something and do it and it'll be fine. And we saw where that got her. She went on to write, and if someone says, no, actually, wouldn't it be better to do Y because of Z, then great. None of this means you shouldn't update on evidence or listen to other people's opinions, just that there's a lot of situations that come down to no one really knows and someone needs to make a call and accept responsibility if it turns out to be totally wrong. And being willing to do that is really valuable. Uh, No, no, it isn't. This reminds me of Firefest when one of the guys there said, let's just do it and be legends. That was a famous quote from Firefest that ended up to be a complete disaster and scam. That when questions were being raised, how they can pull this off, when it turned out they couldn't, he's like, let's just do it and be legends. She's saying that here. That if you don't really know what you're doing, you don't know the answer, just make your best guess, and even if it turns out to be wrong, whatever, it's fine. Unless you wasted $10 billion. She also wrote in another Tumblr post, Asset price bubbles are weird. You might think that knowing you're in one would allow you to feel smart, but it really doesn't. Shit's still anti-inductive. Hashtag quarterly capitalism. Uh, what? I gotta read that again. Asset price bubbles are weird. You might think that knowing you're in one would allow you to feel smart, but it really doesn't. Shit's still anti-inductive. Hashtag quarterly capitalism. Okay. That is not correct. If you know for a fact that a price is on a bubble and it's about to burst and it's about to collapse 
What do you do? Or shall I say, what don't you do? You don't buy it. And in fact, I was in this position. In 2007, I'm sitting in a very mediocre two-bedroom apartment that isn't costing me very much every month. And people come over and they say, Druff, what are you doing here? There's all these poker players who have less money than you do, who are living in very nice condos or very nice houses in Las Vegas. Why don't you buy one of them? Why are you living in this place? And I said, you know, I actually would like to, but I'm very afraid of the housing bubble. I think at any point it's going to crash. I don't know when, but I think at any point it's going to crash. And what happened in 2008? Well, you know, it crashed. I can't say I predicted in 2008 specifically it would crash. I said the same thing in 04, in 05, in 06, in 07, and then in 08, crash. But I knew a crash was coming. I knew that it was a bubble. I just didn't know when the bubble was going to burst. So since I couldn't see when the bubble was going to burst, I did not want to buy. So when you know that you're in a bubble, unless the plan is to buy and then sell quickly before the bubble bursts, you shouldn't buy. So to say that you might think that knowing you're in a bubble would make you feel smart it really doesn't. Shit's still anti-inductive, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, no. I mean, like, if you know you're in a bubble and others don't realize it, you are smart, at least in that sense. And then the smart decision is not to buy or to buy quickly and sell with a short-term profit. Then she also wrote in a different post, again, hashtag quarterly capitalism is at the end. The difference between IP culture in trad finance, meaning traditional finance, versus crypto is wild. When I worked in trad finance, I would never have dreamt of telling anyone outside of work what I was working on, even though in retrospect, a lot of it was like dumb intern projects or whatever. In crypto, the top trading firms are on Twitter and actually tweet their trades and strategies. The hashtag is free alpha. I don't know what that part means, but she's basically saying that in finance, that you don't tell outsiders what you're working on because it's considered a big no-no. It's like giving away company secrets. And in crypto, people are like, oh yeah, we're trading this and this is why. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> More her acting like she knows what she's doing when she doesn't. Here's another one. People ask me a lot what I think of crypto. I didn't get into this as a crypto true believer. And yeah, it's mostly scams and memes when you get down to it. Yeah, you think like your company? But like, I've also come to see a real and pressing need for crypto, probably best expressed in this thread, and then she links some thread. There are no constitutional rights in substance without freedom to transact. Decentralized non-custodial money seems pretty foundational to civil liberties and the ability, and if authoritarian governments are a serious threat to civilization, which seems not totally insane, it could end up being very important. You know, like what she's trying to say there sort of makes sense, but it's really just a lot of gobbledygook. It's a lot of psychobabble. Really, with crypto, there's this false belief that it's a way to stop governments from having control over you. But the problem with crypto is that the price fluctuates so much and that certain events can cause even stable coins to crash, as we saw with uh, Terra Luna. So really, if the government wants to interfere with it, they can. It's not your protection against government. So when she says that 
authoritarian governments are a serious threat to civilization, that it could end up being important. No. Now, if it's a small government, then there's not that much they can do. But a large government can easily disrupt crypto and, and ruin your assets in it. So I don't know what she's trying to say here. It sounds like, again, trying to come off deep-thoughted and thinking outside the box when, in reality, this doesn't mean very much. That's a selection of her Tumblr. If you go to the Autism Capital Twitter, which has been following a lot of this, Autism Capital, exactly as it sounds, you will see that they have a link to her archive of her uh, Tumblr. And then you can click on that if you want to read more. Or you can just go to archive.org and find it there. Just search for her World Optimization Tumblr. I think it's worldoptimization.tumblr.com. You'll find it there. Here's what I think happened with Caroline Allison. I don't think she started off wanting to scam people. I think that Caroline Ellison probably believed that she wasn't doing anything wrong. I, I don't think she like is an evil person, but I think she was very callous regarding using stolen money to invest with. And I think you can see this in some of her posts. Like she's like, okay, I, I've just discovered the right way to handle things is just to go with your gut and do it. And she apparently was also on these stimulants so that probably also encouraged this behavior and i i think she convinced herself that you just got to go for it so if you got to sneak 10 billion dollars out of ftx for alameda research to be able to have the assets to make its trades then you got to do it you got to do it for the good of alameda research and hopefully you'll make the right trades and it'll work out and if not maybe you can recover in some other way and no one will catch it so she probably felt, much like I think Full Tilt felt when they were doing what they were doing, that they'll be able to get back everything they took and no one will know the difference and it'll all be fine. The problem is sometimes there is that proverbial run on the bank and then everything isn't fine and people find that their money is gone and you've stolen it. So there's no such thing as stealing it for now and as long as the owner of the assets doesn't know you've stolen it then as long as you can return it before they know you haven't stolen it, no, you've still stolen it. Stealing with the intention to return it later when you're risking it in the meantime. It's not even like something you're just taking, but you're going to return for sure. When you're taking someone's assets to spend elsewhere or invest elsewhere with the plan to put it back one day before anyone notices, is still stealing. The second you take someone else's assets that are not yours and use them for your own purposes, you're stealing. That's what I said about Full Tilt. That's what I'm going to say here. So I don't think that Caroline believed she was stealing. I don't think that SBF believed he was stealing. I think that they just saw it as something they needed to do. They may have even rationalized this with their effective altruism beliefs that this is a risk they have to take to raise even more money to give away to charities that they like. Because they really were donating to charities. They really were into this effective altruism thing. But they were also stealing people's money at the same time. But it's amazing how some people can rationalize. In fact, 
there are some people who think that effective altruism is a form of rationalization for unethical financial behavior. That if you can always go back to, oh, I'm just stealing, I'm just scamming, I'm just committing fraud, I'm just misleading people so I can make more money to give to good causes, then you can walk the moral high ground. Then you're not the same as a common thief. You're not the same as a greedy scammer. You're someone who's just cutting some corners and doing some unethical things for the greater good. So in one way, you could look at it as maybe even a coping mechanism. So you can look yourself in the mirror. Yeah, I'm stealing, but I'm stealing for a good reason. I'm stealing to make more money for worthy charities. And and I'll return the money at some point. You know, I'm not I'm not actually stealing. I'm just kind of borrowing, just borrowing without them knowing. And then I'll make more money with it. Look, look how much money I've run up already. Look how well I've done already. If I just had some more to invest, imagine how much more I could make and how much more I could give to charity, how much more I could help the world. And, you know, once I've done that, then I'll return the money and nobody will know. And then these charities will have all this extra money they didn't have before, and I'll have done great good for the world. And if I'm ever caught, I can look myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I did it all to help the world. It's a lot different than I did it all to enrich myself, or I did it all to stay in trading action. So there's some people who believe that effective altruism is basically that for most people who are into it. And that's a decent argument. Whenever someone does anything that's contrary to human nature, you do have to wonder why. And effective altruism, unfortunately, is contrary to human nature. Human nature does have a certain element of generosity to it. I mean, we can see that in our free rolls for Poker Fraud Alert, that we have generous people that give money, some very regularly, like uh, Eric Benzamokin, and some irregularly, some who just donate the prizes they won back to the free roll, some who do that sometimes, some who will hold contests every so often for a few hundred bucks or more. And I appreciate that very much, as I always say. And I'm not suspicious of any of these people, in case you're wondering. But that's where there's some human generosity. But have I ever known a person who has lived their life to help me that wasn't related to me or wasn't in a relationship with me? No. If someone was dedicated in their life, and I don't mean a few days or a few hours, I mean like their entire being was to live their life to help me. If I met someone like that, I would say this person's probably psycho. This person's probably going to be expecting favors on the other end. I would get very suspicious if someone just unnaturally wanted to help me and live their life to help me. And I kind of feel the same way of those who want to live their life to help the world, especially when they're not doing it within the confines of some sort of like known organized religion. Like it's a little different if you're going to dedicate yourself to a religious cause, at least there they believe there's some reward on the other end. At least they believe it might be their calling to do. It's a little different there than when you're living in a capitalistic lifestyle, but where you're supposed to be giving away 
all or most of what you're making or taking a position to better the world in the first place and then maybe also give away what you're making. It's just kind of contrary. Usually human nature will direct it to where most of what you make is going to be spent on yourself or your family with some given away to charity or to other people or just uh, whatever you find worthy to give it to. But you're not going to give most away. And I'm not talking about like what Bill Perkins is into where he uh, believes you shouldn't die with any assets and that you should basically structure your life to where you're spending all your money, whether on yourself or giving it away to worthy causes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you're basically living a Spartan lifestyle, or at least far more Spartan compared to what you're making, and then giving away just about everything to what you think are effective charities. I mean, it's, it's nice if you're really just doing it out of the goodness of your heart, but a lot of times that's not really what's happening. A lot of times it's smoke and mirrors. A lot of times it's a, a coping me- mechanism or it's a way to trick people into trusting you or to justify why you're doing certain things. So yeah, I, I understand the skepticism. Dan Smith, who is a poker player, a successful poker player, apparently he's into effective altruism, and he was frustrated that it was getting a lot of bad press as a result of this FTX situation. And he angrily tweeted that what he's seeing here is a scammer who stole a lot of money from people and happened to also be into effective altruism, and that it's not an indictment of effective altruism itself. And that's correct. He's not wrong with he tweeted, but... He has to understand that when a movement has been co-opted by so many phonies that you can't be upset when light starts to shine upon that fact. And when you're part of a movement where there's so many phonies that nobody can really trust anyone in that movement, you you can't complain, oh, why doesn't anyone trust us? I've never done anything wrong. Well, I don't think Dan Smith is a scammer. I think Dan Smith does mean well. I don't know him personally. I've seen him on Twitter, but... From what I've heard of him, I, I think he's probably a good guy and does mean well. You know, when you're associated with a type of movement that has been co-opted by a lot of scammers, you can't complain when people notice that and point that out. And I'm sorry if it reflects badly upon people like you who aren't scammers, but sometimes you're judged by the company you keep. <laughs> and if you're part of a whole movement that has a lot of scammers and phonies, then you can't complain when people erroneously think that about you. I wonder if this is going to hurt effective altruism in general. Because before that, it's kind of been flying under the radar. I've only seen it because there's some poker players into it. That's how I learned about it. But now that it's become more in the public conscience, I'm wondering if it's going to get such an association with this scam and with scamming in general, if people's interest in getting involved is going to die. Because... The last thing you want is to say, oh, I'm an effective altruist. Oh, you mean like that guy who ran the crypto site that stole $10 billion and ruined lives? Oh, you're into that too? <laughs> you're going, no, 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 no. No, that's a scammer. You know, I'm not involved with that, but I'm a real effective altruist. I, you know, it, it starts to become harder to explain. It already gets a bad connotation to it. So I have to imagine this is going to be a, a negative impact on the effective altruism movement. 
I'll tell you, I think if you want to give away a lot of your net worth to charity, great. You know, if that's really you, then that's very selfless. And I have a lot of respect for it if there's no ulterior motive. But then just do it. Just do it. Don't don't be part of this movement where you're associated with other effective altruists. Just just do it yourself. Don't call yourself an effective altruist. Just say, I'm a guy who likes to give a lot of my net worth away to charity because I, I think that's uh, something that's better for the world than me just hoarding it myself and buying myself a lot of nice things. And if you're honest about it and you're not tricking people and you're really giving away what you're saying and you're, you're not doing it to mislead people into trusting you, if this is really what you are, you don't have to call it effective altruism. You can just say that you are very charitable and people will respect you for it. I think giving it a name and being part of a whole movement, it starts to look kind of cult-like to me. And then you start to have a lot of bad people associated with it. Let's move on to another angle to this whole thing. I want to talk about the ultimate bet connection, because there is one. Yes, I'm talking about the same ultimate bet. Ultimate bet, which went down in 2011. Ultimate bet, which scammed users not once, but twice. First, by seeing people's whole cards and playing them at high stakes and stealing their money that way. And then by stealing all the money on deposit. And when they got busted in 2011 on Black Friday, they didn't have any money to pay the players. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Really applies there. If you remember, I was very involved in the exposure of the absolute poker and ultimate bet super user scandals of the 2000s. And... That's where a lot of people first got to associate me with fighting scams and frauds in poker, even though I had been doing that before that somewhat, but that was really the beginning that people really took note of it. And if you might remember, I was on 60 Minutes discussing it. I was on CNBC discussing it. And I was even on a DVD extra of that crappy movie Runner Runner with Ben Affleck and Justin Timberlake. It was an awful movie, but I was on a DVD extra also discussing it. In 2011, a guy came forward to me and Brian Mykon, and we were running a site called Donk Down at the time. His name was Travis McCarr, and Travis brought us tapes of conversations Russ Hamilton had taped, had secretly taped, when they were discussing how to handle the fallout of the UB super user scandal. But he would not give us those tapes, and he only played us little clips of them. But he did come out with a lot of information to us. We weren't sure how much of it was true. We weren't sure what his motivations were. He, of course, claimed innocence and said that he just basically did whatever Russ told him to do and didn't realize that he was enabling this cheating. And then he disappeared. Then two years later, in 2013... He came forward again and provided parts of these tapes. And both times they got a lot of interest. Both times the public was very interested, even though by 2013 it had been five years since the scandal. And then he disappeared again. One of the people that we heard on the UB tapes, in fact, arguably the most obnoxious person 
on the UB tapes was a voice of a person that we hadn't really heard of before named Daniel Friedberg. And Daniel Friedberg was both a lawyer and an executive at UB. And he was discussing how to cover up the whole thing and get away with paying back players the least. Very, very slimy guy. I mean, he was very, very blatant and straightforward regarding what he wanted to do. Now, he didn't think this was going to be made public. He thought this is a private conversation with Russ Hamilton and two others in the room that wasn't going to leave the room. But Russ, for whatever reason, was secretly taping it. And that made some pretty big news at the time. But there still wasn't that much focus on Daniel Friedberg because he wasn't the most interesting person in the scandal. Russ Hamilton was the most interesting person, and he was the ringleader of the whole thing. And then Greg Pearson, who had gone on to bigger and better things by that point, and had pretty much escaped that scandal without all that much publicity against him, he was the second biggest one who was uh, people took interest of in those, those tapes. But because Friedberg wasn't really well-known prior to that, uh, he was just kind of seen as like a lawyer trying to help them worm out of the situation in a slimy fashion. But beyond that, people didn't really take that much note of him. But the reason I'm mentioning this now is because it turned out that Daniel Friedberg was very involved with, yes, FTX. This was actually first pointed out last year before FTX had its collapse. This was pointed out in uh, on a site called uh, CoinGeek, and it was actually written by a guy named Stephen Stradbrook, who used to work for CalvinAir.com. So this is someone who had written about poker before and recognized the name and called it out. But people didn't pay that much attention at the time. There was a Reddit thread about it, but... There wasn't that much attention paid, but now that FTX has collapsed like this, it's very interesting that Friedberg was associated with this as well. So first he was involved with a shady poker site that first cheated players. Then he tried to get them to peddle false stories about it, and you can hear it right on the tapes. And then he tried to, in the same conversation, talk about how they could underpay people who were victims of the whole thing. And years later, guess who's involved with FTX, which ends up being one of the worst examples of a scammy crypto company that has existed as far as the damage that has been done. So it just seems like Daniel Friedberg finds his way over to scammy operations and becomes part of them. This is what was written on CoinGeek back in August 2021 in an article called Tether Links to Questionable Market Makers, Yet Another Cause for Concern. So this is about Tether, the stablecoin. And he was writing about various people that he felt were shady that have some kind of connection to either Tether or other major crypto operations. This is what he wrote about Friedberg. He said, the company's Former general counsel Daniel S. Friedberg is now FTX's new chief compliance officer, a role for which Friedberg is almost comically inappropriate. 
Friedberg joined FTX in March of 2020. Before that, he was a partner at Seattle-based Fenwick & West, where he specialized in financial services for around four years. Before that, Friedberg performed a similar role at a few other Washington-based law firms and was listed as the registered agent of a small Seattle firm in 2008. However, nowhere in Friedberg's re- resume does one encounter the two online poker businesses which, at which he toiled for years. That's probably because both sites ultimately collapsed, taking around $50 million in customers' accounts deposits with them. But long before that debacle, Freeberg played a pivotal role in the attempted cover-up of a major insider cheating scandal. In 2008, online poker site Ultimate Bet, also known as UB, publicly confirmed rumors that certain individuals had util- utilized a little-known feature of the site's software to view players' hold cards during hands. This so-called god mode allowed a number of, quote, super users to cheat opponents out of tens of millions in poker winnings. The site's operators begrudgingly paid out a few million to the loudest complainers and folded the site's operations into a sister site, which was dealing with its own scandals. Now, that, that part's a little bit incorrect because the merger between AP and UB had already occurred by the time AP, uh, UB was called out about this. It is true there were two separate super user scandals, one on each site, but uh, they didn't merge because of it. In 2013, an audio recording surfaced that made mincemeat of UB's original version of events. The recording of an early 2008 meeting with a principal cheater, Russ Hamilton, features Daniel S. Friedberg actively conspiring with the other principals in attendance to, one, publicly obfuscate the source of the cheating, B, minimize the amount of restitution made to players, C, force shareholders to shoulder most of the bill. And then I'm not going to read the rest of the article, but you get the point. Isn't that interesting that Friedberg who was the main force behind the UB cover-up attempt, ended up being the chief compliance officer at FTX. And then he resigned right when FTX had its collapse. By the way, he has deleted his LinkedIn. He doesn't want you to find him. He doesn't want you to find anything about him. Well, I was not going to let Friedberg wiggle off the hook that easily. He had his past from UB, and I wanted to make sure that people in crypto and in poker could hear about this past. And rather than just describe it, like in that article, which described it pretty well, I figured the best way for people to understand what type of person Daniel Friedberg is and was, is to listen to his own words. So I quickly put up a YouTube video three days ago. I hastily threw it together. You can find it on the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. It's called FTX Scam Compliance Officer Daniel Friedberg was involved in a major cover-up of a huge poker scam. This video was something for people to watch, though it's really mainly listening because it's just really the Poker Fraud Alert radio logo with a few other little images popping up. But it's really something to listen to, much like this show. It's an audio thing. But it was a half an hour thing, most of which is Daniel Friedberg talking and being a scumbag, and some of which is me stopping it and commenting on it. So what I'm going to do, rather than describe all this further, I'm going to play you the YouTube video, which again is is pretty much just audio. The the pictures are pretty meaningless, but you got to have something up there on YouTube. So I'm going to play this for you. It already has 1,700 views, and it's growing every day. The crypto world is quite interested in this. I even put a little plug in for Poker Fraud Alert Radio at the end, so hopefully we'll get some new listeners from this. But 
really the the point was not to promote the show. The point was to get it up there quickly and get this up there in an easily accessible form like YouTube to where people can listen to Daniel Friedberg, the former chief compliance officer of FTX, being a complete scumbag almost 15 years prior. So I'm going to play you the YouTube video exactly as is, and then we will come back and discuss the rest of this. Hello, my lovely friends of the poker and crypto communities. My name is Todd Wittellis, also known as Dan Druff, and I am not a young man. I have been around the poker scene for more than two decades. In fact, I've even been around the online poker scene for more than two decades. But unfortunately, that put me square in place to get cheated by the ultimate bet and absolute poker super user scandals of the 2000s. I was playing high stakes poker then. I ran right into these cheaters. I got ripped off for a lot of money. And I was the first one to call it out in 2007 regarding absolute poker. And then a separate scandal for ultimate bet took place in 2008, which turned out had been going on for more than five years. In fact, that was a much lengthier scandal than the absolute poker one. So these were two huge scandals of 2000s poker. And the name you probably remember if you were around in those days or you read about those days would be former World Series of Poker main event champion Russ Hamilton, who won the main event in 1994. But there were other names that were involved. Aside from Russ, the one probably you heard mentioned the most was Greg Pearson. And he eventually went on, ironically, to run cybersecurity firms. In fact, the one he was running became pretty big, called Iovation. But this is not about Greg Pearson. And it's only a little bit about Russ Hamilton. The reason I'm doing this segment so many years after the fact, because it's late 2022, and the tape I'm going to play you is from close to 15 years ago in 2008. The reason I'm playing it is because the main voice you're going to hear on the clips I'm going to play you are from a man named Daniel Friedberg. And Daniel Friedberg was the attorney-slash-executive at UB. He was one of several executives there trying to cover up the scandal when they could no longer hide from it. There was indisputable proof that cheating was taking place over a long period of time on UB, and they were basically trying to figure out what to do and how to get away with paying the least amount of money back to the players. And Travis McCarr was the fall guy for the whole thing. It was decided that they were going to blame Travis for it, and he was going to agree to take the blame and try to get themselves out of any culpability. Russ, for whatever reason, recorded this meeting secretly, and then he gave the tapes to Travis, and then later on, Travis came forward with these tapes. They never went forward with the actual plan to blame Travis. They went a different direction, and Russ ended up taking the fall for it. But that was the initial plan to blame Travis, as you're going to hear in the tapes I'm going to play you. The reason this is relevant now is because Daniel Friedberg was the general counsel of FTX, which is a major cryptocurrency exchange that went belly up, basically, this week and wiped out a lot of people's life savings. It was really, really ugly. It did not affect me personally, unlike the 
ultimate bet scandal, which did affect me personally, but the FTX thing did not affect me personally. But a lot of people, including a lot of people in poker, lost a lot of money because of what happened at FTX. And FTX had Daniel Friedberg on the payroll since March of 2020, and he was their chief compliance officer, which is laughable given his history with UB. So I'm going to play you a clip from this Travis McCarr tape of this meeting between Russ Hamilton, Daniel Friedberg, and two other people. But uh, in this tape, I'm going to play in this portion of the tape, because it's a three-hour tape and a lot of it is hard to hear and a lot of it is not relevant to Friedberg. So I'm going to play the most interesting and important clips from this tape and you're going to hear Friedberg mainly talking. It's going to be Friedberg and Russ Hamilton talking, and I'll stop it every so often to explain what is going on. So let's take a listen. The book from the server allows this. Discovered the server mistake. Right. They've also discovered which account takes advantage of the mistake. And they have times now when this account logged in. So that's Daniel. You're, that's Daniel's voice. You're going to hear a lot of him. Daniel Friedberg is discussing with Russ Hamilton the plan on how to blame this on Travis McCarr publicly, so this way none of them have to take the fall for what happened there. So for us to come out and say the ideal, we've looked at this account, there's no cheating. Uh, it's going to be tough to sell. Now, on the other hand, I think if what, if what we can do is to say we've studied it, we know that sometimes it was used, sometimes it was not. These are these limited times are the times it was used. These people are being refunded. Uh, and whatever the story is in the end, that uh, reports from somebody like McAvoy are going to have to back the story. Did you hear that? So Daniel Friedberg was not talking about coming clean and coming forward with, with the cheating that was really happening. He was coming up with a story to tell the public about the accounts and already discussing how to only pay back some of the people who were cheated by saying that the accounts that were cheating were doing it only some of the time and not all the time. Let's go on. So, you know, we're going to have to say in there, after we determine, what's the explanation for the person asking the question? And you must have asked the question yourself. For third parties to have had access to this tool. Yeah, I don't think we can. In the end, I don't think we can say that it was a third party. Say that there was a consultant that had knowledge of the code. Uh, this uh, and he hacked into the system. You're an expert. Hacked into the system, took advantage of and say that uh, uh, similar to the last one. Here's what I told him. Here's, here's. So that was Russ starting to talk. So some other guy in the background. I'm forgetting who it was, but uh, there was a third person who was asking how they can explain it, and he was saying here that they're going to try to claim that a consultant basically hacked into the system and utilized this feature to look at people's whole cards, and the consultant was going to be uh, Travis McCarr. That's who they were going to blame it on. So this is Friedberg coming up with just a complete nonsense story, a complete fabricated story about what happened. They're not just spinning it a little bit. They are completely changing what occurred to tell the public. This is his suggestion. 
which they ended up not going with only because so much was discovered and so many cheating accounts were discovered that they couldn't just blame it on one guy using one account. See, when they had this meeting, it was earlier on in the whole process. So not as much had come out yet, and they thought they might be able to engage in some damage control. But once too much was known, then they had to go a different direction. But listen to Friedberg there. The guy is actually trying to invent stories to lie to the poker public, and you'll hear why he's doing that shortly. That's what I told Greg this morning. Travis, do you know Travis, my guy? Travis was willing to say that he did all this for me. He hacked it. So he, he actually is the one that fixed it. It was broken. So that's Russ Hamilton, and he's saying that Travis was willing to take the fall, that he had just talked to Travis, who is willing to take the fall for this, and that he told him and Greg, referring to Greg Pearson, that he would do this. And then Russ is saying, look, we're not even completely lying because Travis is the one who fixed the tool. I guess the tool which allowed them to see the whole cards broke at some point. I don't know how it broke, but it, it was having issues working properly, and Travis fixed it according to Russ. So he said, hey, look, you know, he, he fixed it. So in, in a way, it was his tool, which is not really true. Travis did not write the tool. Travis did not have anything to do with the development of the tool. It is possible that maybe he fixed it on Russ's end so Russ could uh, use it when maybe it stopped working for whatever reason. But I assume that was the extent of Travis's involvement in making the tool work. It was never fully understood what Travis's full role was here. It's possible he was nowhere near innocent and was very aware that he was at the, at the very least assisting with cheating but that's not really important here that's very old stuff that we don't have to rehash i'm again playing this so we can hear daniel friedberg's role in this whole thing given the recent news about ftx and the devastation it's caused he actually is the one that and he's willing to say that he even went as far as to call up freddie deep and say russ wants you to cash this because he was like he written for, Everybody knows he does everything for me. He does my airline tickets, my schedules. He does my he does everything. So if he was to call Freddie and say, Freddie, Russ wants to send you some money to cash, or Bonnie, he wants to send you some. So he's willing to say that he did this himself. Just in case you're wondering who he's referring to, uh, Freddie Deeb is one who's always been under suspicion, but it's never been totally clear whether Freddie Deeb was just kind of like a useful idiot that they were cashing out money through, and he was just doing it as a favor and didn't know that he was cashing out cheating money, or if he knew what was going on. That's never been totally clear. I I've suspected that Freddie knew what was going on, but again, that's not really the point here. And the Bonnie he's referring to is Bonnie Lanehost. She's a uh, longtime figure in poker friend of Russ Hamilton, and uh, she was involved in this whole scandal as well on the back end. And she briefly got a job at the Westgate, which I think was called the LVH at the time. But, you know, the former Las Vegas Hilton, she got a brief job a while after the scandal managing the poker room, and actually they were convinced to fire her after they learned about her past involving UB. So good for them to fire her. But uh, that's who they were talking about. Let's go on here. So he, the only person that he might have to say it to is the KGC. He would. He wouldn't want to say that to the one. No, you don't want to say that to her because they would know who Travis is, a lot of people. Right. So no, what this is is just that's the explanation for the KGC in order Okay, let me stop again right here. So that's Daniel Friedberg talking again. And the KGC he's talking about was the Kawanaki Gaming Commission, which was the 
pretty weak regulatory body that was regulating UB. They were based in one of these uh, First Nation areas of Canada, and I guess they were investigating this, and, and Norton was referring to Joe Norton, who was the chief of the Kawanakis and also the head of Toquiro Enterprises, which was the new owner, at least on paper, of UB at the time. And they were saying, okay, we're going to lie to the KGC, we're going to lie to Joe Norton, but everybody else, we're not going to pass the story off about Travis McCarr because they're not going to believe it. And then Friedman goes on to mention that they're going to tell the public even less. I think for the public, it just has to be former consultant to the company, uh, took advantage of a server flaw by hacking in the client, been able to identify exactly when sometimes he played with it, sometimes he played without it. So there he's even crafting what to tell the public, which is even less than the KGC. The KGC, they were going to identify McCarr, and to the public, they were going to tell a reduced version of the story that a former consultant, without naming him, was hacking in and using this tool to cheat people sometimes, but not always. And the reason sometimes is this way they're admitting it happened, but they're limiting how much they claim it happened, so they have to give fewer refunds. Sometimes he intentionally won and sometimes he intentionally lost. Very erratic play. But we've been able to identify at the times when the tool was up and their net wins. And what you could also say is that the tools were originally set for a 15 minute delay and he hacked, he it. hacked it to a, a, to a, a real yeah, time. To a real time. You no, can't. That's what we do. It was, it was originally because Annie Duke used it on a 15 minute delay quite a few times. But uh, in the end, well, but in the end though, there'd be a refund. So what we were asking you in this exercise is not to say that you're going to pay these people but to identify the people that you know well enough that you can explain it away to them if they were ever to assert a claim against us. Okay. Like if they were ever to say I understand, email. I understand. And what you would say is, if when I say talk to us, it wouldn't be that you're involved. It's just that, yeah, I founded this thing with Greg. This is what happened. Uh, you know, friends to the company aren't, we're not getting, you know, I didn't take any money back, even though I was owed money. And, uh, I mean, that's part of the story is that I think, Russ, you have to be owed something here. So he's already crafting a story for Russ Hamilton. Remember the one who was the ringleader of this whole thing? He's crafting a story after the fact. Daniel Friedberg's crafting a story after the fact for Russ Hamilton to tell people who approach him and ask about this so Russ can sound innocent. In fact, Russ can sound like a victim, too, that he's owed money, but he's not even going to collect it. Like, he got cheated, too, but he's not going to even ask for the money back. And this can make them feel better about losing money as well. That if Russ, one of the owners there is not trying to get money back, then maybe they should feel better about not getting paid either. Because, I mean, you played at these high-stakes tables. So, I mean, this thing has to have ripped you off, too. It has mm-hmm. to have. So, uh, otherwise, it's not going to fly. Otherwise, it's not going to fly. So, basically, Russ, you played at the high-stakes. People know that. There's no way you could have not been cheated, and we can't say we refunded you and not them, or it would make sense, so you've got to act like you're pissed off that you got cheated, even though, in reality, you were the one cheating. You've got to pretend you were a victim. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and we can pick off the story for each what do you, what do you? How do you think this money, if you, if it's, suppose it's a $5 million, which Greg thinks it could be right around $5 million, if you had to pay the players and give KG, what's the KG? KG, 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 KG,
I'd be happy. And I'd be and how does the money get paid? Uh, well, it, I mean, we'll convince the business to pay some mm -hmm. straight off the top. Just because of, you know, that's... It's caps up for AP, are you talking about? I'm about the business that's running the company right now. Norton's business. AP or EUP, I'm confused. Well, it's combined. Yeah. So Russ doesn't completely understand the structure of the company for whatever reason, but Daniel does very much. He was probably very closely involved in getting that all set up. So I guess Joe Norton's company was involved in running it at the time. And so he's saying that they have to pay. And also XCAPSA, which was the original owner of UB, they were a publicly traded company in London and they sold UB in order to avoid any kind of legal ramifications since they were publicly traded and they were offering games to Americans after 2006, which was illegal. So that's why it was sold. That's why Joe Norton got involved. So Friedberg saying, hey, even though XCAPSA had nothing to do with the cheating, and even though Joe Norton had nothing to do with the cheating, we're going to get them to pay. We're not going to be the ones paying, even though we are the ones who were involved in the actual cheating. What a great guy. It's combined. Okay. Right. You know, the operators, the new enterprise. I don't think they're responsible for anything. They're not. But nonetheless, we're going to... This is a damage mitigation. Yeah. But I don't think they're responsible for it. I agree. See, even, even Russ here is admitting that they are not responsible, these other people. Ex-Capsa, Joe Norton. But we have scumbag Daniel Freeberg saying here that he's going to get them to pay anyway for damage mitigation to prevent the company from getting damaged further by this story. And even Russ is like, well, wait a minute, they're not responsible. <laughs> so even Russ has more of a conscience here than Friedberg does. So I, I don't think they're responsible for it. Well, well I, they're not morally responsible. However, they did buy this business. When they bought it, they, you, know, you always take a risk when you buy a business. Plus, they made money. Here's, here's what I feel. They made money off the combined business for a year. They have. They can pay some of it just straight up. They can pay some, but here's what I feel. I feel, and I and I did take this money, and I'm not trying to make it right, Dan. So we got to get that out of the way, right, real quick, okay? Uh, I that always got me there. Russ says I did take this money, referring to cheating, and I'm not trying to make it right. <laughs> So I guess he doesn't have much of a conscience, which we already knew, but that was pretty powerful to hear from Russ. But let's go on. I did use a lot for stuff that you don't realize on your for the company that was paid for. I told him. I mean, I mean, crazy Canuck, up until he quit working four months ago, you can go look at his account. I staked him on every tournament to wear ultimate bet gear. And he played all over the country for you guys. I didn't have him out there playing for me. Right. I mean, even Will called me up four months ago. He says, Russ, you quit staking uh, crazy Canuck. He goes, do you think we should still sponsor him? And I thought, you know, if he's not going to play tournaments, I said, no, I, I wouldn't need to hire him anymore. But I had him up there wearing your stuff. And Freddie Deep, up until the time that you... The yes, other, I know. Yeah, I understand. So there's a yeah, lot of stuff. That yeah. Yeah. There's, a lot of, here's, there's a lot of guys that I gave money to that, that it shows me winning that I actually would send them 100000 and say, I'm going to stake you not caring if they want to lose, just to get them to play in the big games. Right. So I would send a, a guy 100000 or 50000 I'm, I'm, I said 100 I'd send 25 or 20 or 10 or this to a lot of people. So a lot of these numbers is not all numbers that came out cash. Maybe cash, I don't know, maybe $7 million, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to tell me that, I don't know. 
So Russ was saying that maybe it's $7 million that he actually didn't keep for himself, that he actually sent out to other people who were on the site just to get them playing high stakes, to get the high stakes going, to stake them in tournaments wearing UB gear. So he's trying to say, look, I didn't really keep as much as you think I did. I did a lot of this for the company, and I sent out a lot of this money on the company's behalf. By the way, a little aside, that was actually somewhat true, and a little aside regarding doing things for the company's behalf, when they were not getting enough people for their Aruba tournament and they were concerned they may have to cancel it, Russ said, don't worry, I'll get you players. And then what he did was he would go on these satellites. They just kept running all these satellites for the Aruba tournaments and he would just go on there with his super user accounts and just keep winning satellite after satellite after satellite and staking his friends and other people he knew or frequent players on the site. So that was how they got a lot of the players that year when they were having trouble getting people interested in that Aruba tournament was just by Russ winning satellites using the super user tool and handing those seats out. So he was trying to build up the company with the cheating money. That doesn't make it right. I'm just saying that he isn't lying when he says this, but he's saying this for a self-serving reason, Russ. He's saying that he didn't get as much as they think he did and basically trying to lay out the framework of why he shouldn't have to pay it back. And Daniel's not arguing. Daniel's like, yeah, yeah, I know, Russ. I know, I know, I know. But Bonnie didn't get as much as Greg said here. Cash. Freddie Dean got the most cash. Also, the Freddie and Bonnie together were like five to six. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. That's, that's what I said. Bonnie maybe got, Freddie got the majority of it. I don't know who got it all. Yeah, Freddie Dean. Freddie Dean got the majority. Now, Paul is convinced that Carolyn is involved. She's not. And only because the entries on all these things. I know. And here's the thing with Travis. Okay, before they talk about Carolyn, let me explain who these people are. Paul Leggett was the person who took over, but I think he was more of a figurehead, but he was the guy who took over UB post-cheating scandal, kind of trying to make the thing look legit again. And then Carolyn was Carolyn Hike. H-E-I-A-C-K, and she was a longtime friend of Russ, and uh, she was involved in the back end, and she was the one helping Russ get the account names changed so it looked like people were playing against a bunch of different cheaters because there were tons of cheating accounts, but a lot of these were just the same account with different names to where anyone playing couldn't tell the difference that it was not a new account. It, you know, to them, it would look like a new account. And this would be so people wouldn't suspect as easily what was going on, that it wasn't one person always crushing. So Carolyn was the one changing the account names. And according to Russ, as you'll hear, that Travis would call up on his behalf and ask Carolyn to change the account names, and she would. But Russ is trying to say here that Carolyn wasn't actually involved in the cheating, that she was just basically doing what she was asked to do and wasn't really told what was happening. Travis would call Carolyn. Travis would call Carolyn and say, Russ wants you to change your name. Right. Well, and Carolyn would say, yeah. But Paul thinks that Carolyn was involved. Really? Why? You say why? Because that shows that Scaps is responsible. Because Carolyn worked for Jim. Carolyn was one of Jim's DDs. You guys like the cell phone rings of the 2000s? You missed that? 
You miss those ringtones in the 2000s? It's pretty obnoxious. Oh my god. See, look, look at the scheming that's going on here by Daniel Friedberg. Doesn't this guy just seem like a total snake to you? So he's saying here that even though Russ himself is saying that Carolyn wasn't involved, that Paul Leggett seems to think she was because of all the account names being changed, and even though Russ is saying, no, 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 Travis is just asking her to do it, and she was just doing it and not asking questions, he's saying, no, 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 we need to say she was involved because this way we can get ex-CAPSA to pay a lot of this cheating money back, and we don't have to. So as long as we make ex-CAPSA think that one of their people was involved, I bet they'll pay. So it's a good thing that she's suspected. That's what he's telling Russ. Just throwing Carolyn under the bus. She was a VP there. Uh, in order to get to ex-CAPSA's money legally, they almost, they almost have to show fraud because they've gone through this clean bar process to... Okay. Well, looking at two aspects of it, first off, back door, the audit monster not being disclosed to the buyer. Right. Well, yeah, that as well. And then but Jim Ryan, the fact. Jim Ryan knew that. Jim Ryan knew it was there. Didn't know what it had to be used for, but he knew it was there. And he hid that from Yuri. Jay obviously was told not to tell Yuri about this. Jason went through the entire code base with Yuri. He said the place where it was in the code was in an unusual place. Anyway, but so, yeah, no, so to get, to shift the responsibility to its NAFSA, which is my current goal, that unfortunately well, they're the only people who have the money benefiting from this. And the reason that Russ, if this was used to support the props and... Okay, so let, let's discuss what we just heard here. The Audit Monster, which was the name of the tool, Audit Monster 1 and 2. And so basically... Freeberg's trying to say, well, we can get XCAPSA to pay because it was never disclosed that this tool existed. So we can blame it on them that this tool existed and that somebody exploited it, even though that somebody was Russ <laughs> and probably Greg Pearson too, that we can 
blame them for having this tool in the first place because supposedly this tool was created at the very beginning not to cheat but for testing purposes and then it was just never taken out and then the idea was hatched and there's various theories as to why the idea was hatched but the idea was hatched to use it to cheat and then it was used to cheat for five years until it was caught it probably would have kept going for many more years if it was not caught so they're trying to come up with ways to make Excapsa pay back, blaming it on this Carolyn woman and blaming it on the fact that this tool was there in the first place and wasn't properly disclosed when the sale from Excapsa was made. Which is laughable because there's Russ right there who actually used it and cheated everyone and admits it. So that's a little sample for you of Daniel Friedberg and what a snake he was, and I'm sure still is. And it's not surprising that he was the compliance officer for one of the worst crypto companies that there has been as far as damage to the crypto scene. There's only been a few that have been really, really impactful to the crypto world when they have done shady things and gone down. And FTX is definitely one of them and definitely the most impactful problem company of this year okay we're back live again isn't that pretty amazing the way freeberg was acting there what a freaking scumbag so there's renewed interest in him and that's good maybe something will finally happen to this guy from a legal standpoint maybe at least this will be something that gets him in trouble even though he wormed out of any kind of legal responsibility for the ub stuff Let's try to put on a co-host here. Because a co-host happened upon the show while it actually wasn't live. You're playing that YouTube. Calwat, hello. How you doing, Russ? Well, it happened that you woke up right when we were playing the one portion of the show that wasn't live. Go oh, figure. okay. Yeah, I was, was wondering what that was. I'm like, is Russ is back in the news. What's going on? Well, he is. I mean, you, you heard what that was there. It was the lawyer of UB who engineered the cover-up, and he was involved with that FTX thing. Oh, of course he was. Yeah, everything, <laughs> everything links back to poker somehow. That's a crazy story, this whole thing. Uh, we're near the end of the FTX coverage, but the, the rest of this is kind of just discussion of where it goes from here, which I'm sure you'll have an opinion as well. So the questions come up, is this the beginning of the end of the crypto revolution of the past decade? I don't know. I've heard this many times before, all the way back to when Mt. Gox went down about 10 years ago, that, okay, that's it for crypto. It's not going to withstand this, and then somehow it withstands it. I've seen so many of these different scandals, which are supposedly going to mean the end of crypto, and then crypto ultimately recovers and sometimes even thrives beyond where it was before. So it is very difficult to put this whole crypto movement down. It seems like, in fact, maybe people are getting numb to the scandals. But where this one does have some difference is that it really did wipe out a lot of people who had a lot of money in the crypto space. And it's probably made mainstream news more than any of them, aside from maybe Mt. Gox, which might be about equivalent. But when Mt. Gox happened, crypto hadn't really hit the mainstream yet. So now that it has been in the mainstream for a long time, 
and then this occurred, and because it was a major exchange, people are really shaken regarding their trust of crypto. And I wonder how much you can grow from this point. And you could say, well, maybe the government can step in and start regulating more, but then that's going to start to get away from the whole point of it. Yeah, that's the funny thing is I hear people <laughs> complaining to the government. I'm like, come on, man. The whole point of this was a decentralized currency that the government didn't regulate. You know, I mean. Yeah, that's the problem. And something else I said on the forum that I'll repeat here is that sometimes people assume that someone who is capable of running up a bunch of crypto or starting a crypto business that becomes successful is capable of running a very large operation and not either doing something unethical or doing something stupid. And the truth is, they're often not. And if you look at the two main people that seem to be involved with this whole thing, this Sam Bankman-Fried and Carolyn Ellison, uh, both of them seem very socially awkward. Both of them seem just very weird. Both of them seem to have a lot of quirks. Uh, honestly, I think both of them are probably on the autism spectrum. And they're, they're, neither's really the type that you would picture as a CEO of a large operation. These, these are the types you'd picture who'd be maybe working in the background and either doing tech work or doing analysis, but at the top, running everything, no. They just don't seem to have the personality types to where this could be successful long-term without something bad happening. And, and sure enough, th this is what happened. And I don't think this was a premeditated scam at all. I, I just think that either from the substances they were doing or from just their general feeling that you got to do what you got to do to get capital to invest, that bad decisions were made that involved stealing, and then it all went bad. And that's, that's what happens when you don't have the skills, the skill set or the maturity or the experience to run a big operation. And I, I think that plays into it some. I mean, you look at these two and you, and you, you observe these two in their interviews and you go, I can't believe these people were in charge. I mean, that's true even of entrepreneurs, right? So a lot of times the people who are the best people to, uh, you know, innovate in some area and, and start a quote-unquote disruptive startup or whatever are rarely the people that are good at running an operation and, and growing it from the startup phase into the mature business phase, let alone people like this who are, you know, the, an obscure thing like crypto just makes them millionaires or billionaires and gives them an enormous amount of power and elevates them uh, to a position of uh, responsibility running these companies. You know, I mean, it's, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be the death knell of crypto as an idea. Um, I think there are some really good parts of it that are there, but I think people are also starting to realize the benefits of having a currency that are backed by the government too, you know? Yes. And, you know, I've seen some comparisons to like, well, okay, what about Bill Gates? He he had some of the same attributes. He was someone who's kind of uh, socially awkward and and had you know issues where you would think, oh, he couldn't run a successful company, and then he did. But the difference is, by the time Microsoft became prominent, he had already built up the business from nothing and and seemed to have uh, 
that talent and that skill set where in crypto it's different to just uh, be able to quickly run up crypto assets and uh, and even get an exchange going that manages to work for a short period of time. Uh, there's a big difference in that and, and what Bill Gates did. So I, I really just don't think these two were fit to be doing it. And then I think the stimulant usage was, was part of not being fit to do this. And the the fact is that a, a relatively small number of people were managing such a company with such huge value, valuation and not even responsible people, but really a bunch of uh, 28 to 30-year-olds who were on stimulants all the time and not acting <laughs> responsibly. So that's... Like you see, you see these companies. Like you look at FTX, and it's uh, it's it's U.S. regulated, and it's so big, and it's so respected, and you you don't picture what it really was. If if you saw what was really going on in the background, you'd say, "Oh my God, I can't believe that's what's really happening back there." So, it, it, Jeff, you were talking about you know <laughs> these uh, people in their twenties uh, on stimulants all the time, and you know going going a little crazy. And all I could think about is the parallels to Wall Street. In the the seventies and eighties, you know, yeah, there are lots lots of people hopped up on uh, cocaine doing some kind of crazy shit on yeah. Wall Street too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if this is going to ruin crypto or if it's going to just kind of hold it back to where it can't grow any further, and where the general public's faith in it is going to be shaken to where it, it's going to have a hard time getting past where it is at the moment, which which has been a persistent problem, where crypto hasn't died, but it also hasn't made it into the mainstream where you can use it to pay for everyday things or where most people are using it. it it's still kind of stuck in niche territory as it's been since the beginning. And while most people know about it now, um, the vast majority of Americans, if you asked them, do you use it, they'd say no. And if you asked, do you know, would you know how to use it, they would say no. And I know there's some tools out there that make it a little easier without having to have a deeper understanding of what it is. But, but still, a lot of people still feel intimidated by it and a lot of business don't want to accept it because of the, the fluctuation in value and all the other risks that come with it. And this is not going to help. Every time something major crashes and people lose a fortune then this just scares people away from wanting to get involved so i don't think this is going to cause just major major crashes we've had a kind of minor crash to where it's gone from 21.3 down to high 16s in bitcoin value and it's funny calling that a minor crash but compared to some other crashes it kind of is i'd say it's like a moderate crash not minor but like a major crash would be if it falls like below 10 and that was predicted at first when this happened, but it seems to have stabilized some. I, I think everyone kind of just realizes what has happened. I don't think anything more shocking is going to come out. I think most people now believe the money's gone and they're never getting it. And whatever drama now unfolds from this point forward, I don't think is going to crash the market because people are expecting the worst at this point with FTX. It does make people think. And it makes you wonder what you can trust in crypto. And that's really a big issue is if some of the biggest players can't be trusted, then what's next? Which brings me to my next subtopic and the last one we're going to talk about before moving on. Hey, Drew, um, before you change topics, there's actually something in the news here. In uh, I, I live in the suburbs of Rochester, New York. So up here, apparently they're, uh, the governor is 
considering passing a bill limiting Bitcoin mining uh, or, or minute, limiting those operations. And I didn't even know it was here, but apparently there's a decent sized company called Foundry that is uh, somewhere in Rochester that that's what they do. Like it's just a, like a data mining facility. And, uh, you know, so it's all in the news about, you know, oh, we don't want to be regulated. And then there are environmental protesters saying that it's just, uh, you know, a drain on the grid and all that kind of stuff. And it's just interesting. I had no idea. I When I think about Bitcoin mining facilities, I think of them in uh, in third world countries, you know, where there's no regulation and it's cheap and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I was just surprised it was here. Yeah, I didn't know about that either. I know there were some that had popped up in the U.S. for a while that people would buy yep. warehouses that weren't being used and would sometimes go to small towns that they were able to convince them to allow them to use such electricity. And there was some controversy about it. I didn't know it's over where you are. And yeah, it yeah, is a big foundry. Trend. And apparently 170 people work there in one capacity or another. And yeah. I'm like, I, I never even heard of this. It, it is a big strain on the grid, and it's really not accomplishing very much. Like, all it's doing is, uh, is is basically operating the Bitcoin network. And th- there's been questions about that. Like, is this really worth it from an environmental standpoint to be running something like this? And that's had some criticism as well. And yes, there, there's a lot of localities that don't want it there for, for the reasons we just discussed. So I, I didn't know that about Rochester, though. Not not shocking yeah. about it, but... Well, and there's a state bill that apparently they're... It's not passed or anything, but it's something that they're debating in order to uh, not make it legal to do here from an environmental point of view and for the, the reasons that you were talking about. I don't know if that you have the problem that we do here in California where we'll have power problems like in the summer where everybody wants to turn on the AC at once on the very hot days that'll happen in August and early September. But Uh in California, this wouldn't fly because we have enough electricity problems as it is. So the last thing people would want would be something like that, hogging up electricity in in some kind of locality where people can't run their AC because Bitcoin's being mined. Yeah, we never have that problem. I think I mean, the California problem is probably just a people problem. There are probably just so many people wanting so much power. Uh, whereas in upstate New York, it's much more sparsely populated. You know, fewer people want to live here just because of the weather and uh, everything else. Uh, and there also is a nuclear power plant, like uh, just probably probably 20 or 30 miles from here. Oh, okay. The Ghanai yeah. nuclear power plant. And I think that was actually built in part for powering uh, Kodak and Xerox, which also have headquarters kind of near there. Yeah. Well, that probably will, I don't want to get too much off topic, but the yeah. nuclear power probably will something be something that a lot of areas have to begrudgingly accept because it is very efficient and it can yeah. solve a lot of these power problems and people have to get over the fear of it. It's not as dangerous as people think. There's a lot of bad press about nuclear power plants that uh, isn't really deserved. It's not without danger, but it's a lot less dangerous than people think. A lot of people just don't want it nearby for yeah, reasons I've never that you can understand. That. I mean, I, I get that there is an, a waste problem, um, but in terms of like the demand for power and where are we going to get it from, if we want to get away from fossil fuels, okay, but like in a place like upstate New York, we can't have too many uh you know, we can have some wind farms and we can have 
a little bit of solar, but it's not even sunny up enough up here. So why not nuclear? You know? Yeah, I, I think I, eventually I they're going to break down and do it because you know, we have the solution sitting right there. It's just a yeah. matter of getting people to buy into it. And I knew a guy uh, years ago that was in the business of disposing of nuclear waste. Like that's kind of what they did. And they're, they're, what he was saying was, and I don't, you know, take this as a grain of salt because he's in the business, but he said it was a solved problem in terms of disposing of the waste and, you know, they can seal it off for an amount of time. He said it's a political problem in terms of whether people are going to agree to do it or not, not a logistical or technical problem. Yeah, it mostly is. Some it of the mostly more modern is. Uh, reactors. Yeah, it mostly is people being scared of it. Yeah. And, and a lot of it does change over time of, the ability to deal with this, both from a safety's perspective and the uh, and a disposal of waste perspective. In fact, uh, I'll t- I was even victim to old school thinking regarding X-rays, where mm. I was really avoiding X-rays as much as I could, including dental X-rays, and I was very begrudgingly doing it because I really needed some. And then when it came time to do them with Benjamin, I had remembered when I was a kid that my dad was. Uh, telling them not to do x-rays unless there was a real reason for it. So we just didn't do it, right. which is fine. I actually didn't have any dental problems until I was a late teenager or so. As a little kid, I didn't really need them. But uh, it turned out that this was very antiquated thinking. So they insisted to me, and I wasn't sure if I should believe them, they insisted to me at the dentist that they have to take x-rays as part of the practice that they won't treat him unless I agree to the x-rays. I'm like, oh, shit. Well, I, I don't want to really want to lose the dentist for him. So I said, well, let, let me... Uh, okay, you can do it here this time, but as far as the future, I'm going to have to think about it. So after that, I went home and researched it, and I found out that the radiation from modern dental x-rays is a small yep. fraction of what it was in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, okay, so no wonder my dad didn't want it back then. It was much worse. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not the same thing anymore. Same with CT scans, which are much more radiation than x-rays. With those, they also have less uh, radiation than they used to. Uh, so they've improved these things over time. And uh, something else you guys may not know about CT scans, since we have almost a completely male audience, that they are much more dangerous for females than they are for males. And that is because the most common form of cancer that comes from CT scans is ovarian cancer. And if you don't have mm. ovaries, then you're much less likely to ever get cancer from CT scans. And one other thing is that it is something that is cumulative. So... If you don't do them that often, it's never going to be an issue. And also, if you're very old, you don't have to fear them because you're likely not going to live enough more time for the cancer to develop. And also, if you've barely had any of it in your life and you're just starting at 75, you're just not going to get enough radiation from these to for cancer to develop in the remainder of your life. So um, that's something the older listeners should know also that you shouldn't really fear CT scans if you're in your 70s. That's one good thing about being old, that uh, the time that it would take to cause a problem, just you don't have that much time. So while it's kind of depressing, you may not have that much time. Uh, on the good side, you don't have to worry about the long term from that, So uh, especially if you're male. So these were all uh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had a CT scan. <clears throat> I might have. Yeah, I've, I've, had, but... I've had some. When I was younger, I had uh, I had, a, I had a horrible accident when I was a kid. Like I, had, I ended up having like over, uh, I, I cracked my head open basically. Oh wow! And and I was told this, and I had you know like uh, major surgery. I got 
a whole bunch of stitches there. Everything's fine now. I can't even see it. But I, I was told by my mother, who was also a doctor, that we should try to avoid x-rays because I had a ton of them you know, back then when it probably was not great to have a ton of x-rays. Um, but then I did the same thing you did. I researched it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just being stupid by not getting dental x-rays. All right, you know, let's go. Let's do yeah, it. yeah. ever since I learned that, I stopped worrying about the dental x-rays. I'm like, okay, well, it's so much less uh, than it used to be. Yeah. It's just it's one of these things you get used to from thinking of something many years ago, and you've got to get unused to it. It's the same thing when I uh, talk with people about uh, matters of cholesterol and blood pressure, and people just, uh, they keep talking about diet, diet, diet. And I say, you know, that's not really the main factor. The main factor in both yeah. of those is heredity. And diet can help somewhat, but uh, if, if you have the heredity to have these problems, uh, the diet's probably not going to be enough or anywhere near enough, and you're probably going to have to get on medication. And on the other side, uh, there's a lot of people who would have a diet that you'd expect would cause high blood pressure or cholesterol problems and does not at all. In fact, uh, on the cholesterol side, I have very good genetics, and I have like a 142 total cholesterol, which people would never guess, but I do. So... I just happen to be lucky in that sense. So anyway, the, the pe- people, uh, they take what they learned back in the 80s, and then yep. they can't get away from it. And sometimes you just got to look and go, oh, yeah, they've, they've done further studies, and that's not the case. So you got to forget what you knew before. And it can be hard sometimes. Anyway, let's and, get and back. An important way to think about it, Druff, and I know, I know we're off on a tangent, but think about how much better just the computer you're using now is than the the stuff that you were using 20 or 30 years ago, right? Like it's just incredible progress. Similar progress has been made in a lot of other areas of technology, just like you're talking about in terms of making them uh, more power efficient, less invasive, more safe and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes. But but yeah, anyway, so we got a, apparently we got a Bitcoin mining operation here in upstate New York and there may be a bill affecting it and, I don't know, man. It seems like a an interesting time for crypto, and I don't know where the where the currency is going to sit. There are people that are interested in it from a uh, a technical point of view, uh, and that obviously is still fine and uh, is still a valid thing. There are people that are interested in it in an ideological point of view, in terms of like, well, we can have this money that the government can't regulate, and I think the there are still going to be people that adhere to that but the mainstream people who were just like yeah this is great no regulation and now <laughs> after they lose all their money over and over again they're like yeah maybe it's not so great yeah. <laughs> i also had somebody ask me recently who has like a few thousand dollars in crypto just for an investment and unfortunately yep. they bought it when it was near its peak they they asked you know what, what should i do with this should i just get rid of it and i said well, i i don't know but i don't see that much of a chance that we're going to have them big run-up anytime soon. I, th- I think that uh, mm. it, it'll probably, at best, go back to where it was. It was sitting around 20000 per Bitcoin for a long time. It was actually pretty stable, uh, very yep. consistently around twenty, And now we've fallen into the high 16. So could it climb back to the low 20s again it, once this blows over and everybody else who lost from FTX kind of just moves on and we forget about them and those who were not badly affected or not affected at all can move on with their lives. Yeah, that, that could be a, a scenario that could easily happen. People forget about these things quickly and move on to the next thing. But I do think that to have another run-up, people would have to have a lot of enthusiasm for crypto. 
And I think this could be a big damper on any kind of enthusiasm that could happen in the near future. I think that's yeah. a big problem that uh, every time people start getting excited about crypto, this crypto, that, oh, yeah, but what about this major exchange and crashed? Uh, how, w- what if it happens again? Uh, should we really invest much? Like, I, I could see people thinking this where before it, it kind of seemed like as it was mainstreaming and uh, as, as more and more exchanges were starting up and ways to buy into it and uh, as people were getting more excited about crypto even though there was no real practical usage for it still there there was this run up and i just think this is going to hold it back that's that's what i think is more likely than causing a tremendous crash to where in a few months bitcoin will be down to $3000 i i don't think that's likely it could happen but i think if we were going to get there i think we would have had a bigger hit already well, also, you can think about crypto almost like a commodity in in terms of why you would buy it, right? So you would buy a commodity because you, you think it's going to go up in value and you could sell it for a profit in the future. The difference with crypto is that it came, it's a technology-based commodity and it came with a whole lot of marketing hype that came along with it, some of which was true and some of which was just kind of bullshit but in terms of a, an everyday currency like i know you used bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies for sending money uh you know back and forth for various things but it's still not a very mainstream thing uh in terms of if i had uh you know a bunch of crypto i can't really do that much with it in terms of buying stuff and on the other side of things the traditional banking systems that are in place uh, have made it just as easy to do electronic purchases. You know, you can just go online, use your credit card, use Apple Pay, use Google Pay, use whatever it is to electronically transfer money and and buy stuff. And you know, I, so I don't I don't know where it falls. It almost seems to me like it's just going to be a speculative uh, commodity. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's something that is eventually going to really be a practical thing that people no. can use on a daily basis? I, I don't. Maybe yeah. in the future, if the government gets involved and yeah. if it starts to become easier for the general public to understand and access and use on an everyday basis, if it kind of uh, gets worked into the financial system to where it's something that uh, you can easily use. Otherwise, no, and I, I've said this for a long time, that's going to be a big limiting factor. I thought the last run-up was interesting because it wasn't really fueled by any kind of practical usage of crypto, but more just enthusiasm yep. for crypto in general. And I don't think any of the current forms of crypto are, are really going to be it, uh, in, unless somehow people take the existing forms of it and, and you know, as I said, the government gets involved and the financial system gets involved and starts to kind of intertwine it there but as you said we've already we already have that so what's really the point so i don't have really a good long-term view of where the current form of crypto is going to go and truthfully even though i do use it if you take away all of my gambling usages of it yeah or usages of it to pay people from free rolls from poker fraud alert like i'm really not using it for anything it really is all gambling related yeah, and you're using it for gambling-related things because the the existing systems, a lot of them ban it. You know, yeah. like you can't use the the PAL to send stuff back and forth because you're you're going to be screwed. And even some of the other ones are, they make it difficult to do that. I mean, I I like to think of crypto as a, a rare earth metal, you know, and a huge vein of it was discovered years ago. 
But now it's harder and harder to mine it. It's harder and harder to get it. And you can't be wheeling, you know, wheelbarrows of the stuff around from place to place to do anything with it. So (laughs) I I really do kind of think of it as a commodity. Uh, I do think, obviously, I think that electronic payments of things is going to be the way that everything happens. But I think the, the traditional system of doing things has adapted that it's easy enough for your average person to do what they want uh, electronically now without the addition of a crypto. It's just when you are stepping outside of that and you want to send some money for purposes that uh, the government doesn't like that crypto really becomes a, a really useful tool. There's one other way it could be useful, and that is in yeah. every type of electronic payment method that exists today, except for crypto, there's always a way to charge it back, which is always a risk when you're accepting money because what can mm. happen is you're, you're paid something and then the person can make up bullshit that, oh, a hacker got into my account and, and right. bought this and uh, I didn't really send it, and then it can be taken back from you. And that's why I warn yeah. people not to accept large sums of money on Zelle or on PayPal. Like, there's so many different ways that money can be clawed back through electronic payments even mm-hmm. on uh, forms that you would not think like Zelle. So crypto, you can't reverse. And I've thought about if I'm doing a transaction with a complete stranger, especially one that's large, the only yep. two ways I would accept money from them would be cash or a cashier's check where I actually go with them into the bank and I watch it be printed or <laughs> yeah, or crypto. <laughs> it's really one yeah. of those three. So the good thing with crypto is I could take someone I don't trust at all and as long as they're the one paying me and I can verify that the crypto went through and it's in my wallet, then at that point I could think that they're as shady as they can be and I won't yep. mind selling the item to them because I know they have no way to get it back from me. And that's, that's a valuable thing to have. That's something that uh, I, I fear taking electronic payments of any large size otherwise from strangers. So I do think that's a nice thing with crypto. Now, the downside of it is since you can't charge back that uh, if someone scams you with it, you're just screwed. Then you, there's no way to get the money back. But there is some yeah. utilization for something that's irreversible. It is nice to have irreversible things when you're not scamming, because then you also can't be scammed that way. So that's that's something I, I do like about crypto. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. Um, I think that the, the average person probably is not sending or receiving large sums of money to people they don't know on a regular basis. So it outside of certain use cases, that's probably not a big deal. I also think that the the banking industry and the finance industry is perfectly willing and happy to pick and choose the the cool things about crypto and start using themselves. So there, there's no reason they can't do blockchain-based ledgers if they wanted to. You yeah. know? I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't just adopt these pieces of it that they think are valuable and discard the actual uh, uh, commodity. Yeah, I, I could easily see that in the future. So, okay, I want to get to the sort of related final subtopic of this, and that is... What will crash next? What is the immediate future now? So what can you trust? You obviously couldn't trust FTX, but what if you have money or crypto on Binance? What if you have it on Crypto.com? What if you have it on Coinbase? What if you hold a stable coin like Tether? How safe are any of these? There's a lot of people thinking, for example, that Tether's time is coming soon enough, that this is going to be the next scandal, that Tether the best-known stablecoin, is going to go the way of Terra Luna, and it's going to crash. 
and something and shady stuff will be revealed. Even that article that uh, was written about Daniel Friedberg on CoinGeek last year was really more about Tether than FTX, saying that Tether has associations with shady people. So there's, this is renewed discussion that Tether could have issues. Now, Tether's not an exchange. It's a stablecoin. But that is something people are holding, thinking this is kind of a safe thing to hold in crypto, and it may not be. Then Binance, that's huge. And people have thought, okay, Binance isn't going to go down, but who knows? I mean, look at uh, Binance. There's been rumors that they're not as stable as people think and that they're one bad thing away from falling apart and that if there's a bank run on them, the same thing's going to happen. Remember, Binance uh, quickly got rid of their position of this FTT token on FTX. And who knows if... uh, if they hadn't gotten rid of it, if they had just taken a big loss from this, what would have happened to them? Like, how stable really is Binance? And and what about Crypto.com? And what about Coinbase? What about some of these other exchanges? And if you can't name something where you could hold your Bitcoin or your other crypto, where you feel confident it will never go down, then... How usable is cryptocurrency? Forget usable on a daily basis, even just how good is it to hold any of it if you can't hold it anywhere that you can trust? And then the only option is offline storage, which then has its own set of risks. So where where is a safe place to put your crypto? Like picture if you had 10 million in crypto and you didn't have much else. Let's say that was your net worth or very close to it and you didn't want to liquidate it, where would you put it? Would you keep it offline? Would you trust it on one of these exchanges? Would you separate it to several exchanges so if one went the way of FTX, you still wouldn't be ruined? Honestly, it'd be kind of a tough decision. I've kind of wondered, the people who have a ton of money in crypto, where are they storing it? How are they storing it? What protections do they have? Because every way you can store it is a risk in a different way. So I am wondering what is coming next. And so are a lot of other people. And this also could prevent the growth of crypto. That it, this, this may not be a one-off. And even if this is a one-off, for the moment, people are thinking that there's a good chance it's not. So there's a good chance that this is the first domino and that there's going to be a number of others falling. Even if Binance manages to be okay, and some of the others end up okay, and maybe if Tether doesn't fall apart. What is next? And then how many of these crashing will finally shake crypto to where you see a major, major crash, where just everything totally collapses? And, and that's another thing, that if we have a tremendous collapse, because remember, these cryptos tend to collapse together. You have tens of thousands of cryptocurrencies, yet... Rarely do you have any cryptocurrency that's traded with any kind of volume that doesn't crash along with the others. They're all associated in that way. They try to act like they're separate, but the truth is it's it's basically one market. So when one's going up, the rest are probably going up, and when one is crashing, the others are crashing. There's some variance in that, but uh, for the most part, when there's a general down market, then everything else is falling in crypto. 
except for some very small coins. So how many of these type of situations, especially in the short to medium term from this point forward, can the whole crypto industry take before we really see a major crash? Like, say Bitcoin just really starts free-falling and keeps going till it gets to about 2000 to where the whole value gets cut by 90% from what it was in early November. Let's say by December 1st, we're down to 2000 Not only is that going to really reduce the net worth of a lot of people who are into crypto, but will this really destroy crypto? Will people say, you know, I have no faith anymore and would it fall further? So the, you got to wonder how much more of this can the crypto industry take before something really devastating happens to all of crypto? Because all it takes is everybody deciding that they've lost interest. And when I say everybody, I don't mean 100% of the people. I mean like the majority of those who are into crypto saying, you know what, this is not a good investment. Everything's just falling. I'm getting out. And then the whole thing can fall apart. The whole thing can fall apart as quickly as it began. And that is a possibility. I'm not predicting this. I'm just saying that this is not unreasonable to think could happen if more of these occur. I think if more don't occur, this will recover. But if more happens in the short to medium term, it's going to really shake people's confidence. And then we're going to really have to withstand some pretty deep crashes, I think. So on the good side, the fact that it's only fallen to the high 16s from the low 21s, given how volatile crypto crypto can be anyway, that's not the worst crash. But I think we're kind of on the brink of another one if something happens soon. And there's been chatter that this could come. And keep in mind, there was some chatter about FTX for a while, that something wasn't quite right there. So yeah, the shit really hit the fan in the past week, but there's been chatter for a while. And then it turned out the chatter was true. I think it also exposes that what seems to be big responsible operations may not be, and it's making people want to know more. It's not enough to just say, well, they're big, they're regulated, it's got to be fine. Maybe it's not fine. That'll be very interesting to see what happens to crypto in the next uh, few months and even the next six months to a year. I don't think we're going to see a bull market in crypto. I'd be very surprised if we see much appreciation in that time. I think we'll either have kind of a recovery and stability again or or another crash. I don't think there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm for crypto until some time passes and there isn't another one of these. Because I think right now people's confidence is kind of shaken. And for good reason. And the exchange situation, I mean, this is really the backbone of using crypto as an investment. If you just like it from the technical standpoint or or from the standpoint of uh, saying fuck the government, that's a different story. But if you want to invest in crypto, if you want to know that the crypto is something you can convert back to fiat currencies and then back to crypto again, you you know you always have that ability, you have to have faith in exchanges. And if you don't, then that's a big problem. 
it'll be interesting also to see if any of these people are brought to justice and how much of an effort the U.S. will make to track these people down and grab them. I don't think any of them are coming back to the U.S. anytime soon, at least not voluntarily. All these people have to think they're going to be wanted. I'm even wondering about uh, Daniel Friedberg. He's deleted his LinkedIn. I bet he's watched my video, too. Like, if you look at him up on YouTube, I think my video is, like, number two in the results. So I bet he probably watched my video. He's like, damn it, this freaking po- poker fraudler guy again. <laughs> uh, he, he's uh, obviously pretty worried if he just removed his LinkedIn. I wonder if he's going to bounce from the country or if he already has. I guess it depends how much the U.S. wants to get them. I have a feeling they probably will want to get at least Sam Bankman-Fried. He was the ringleader of this whole thing. And maybe Caroline also. They're the, they're the two who probably would be most wanted in this whole thing, especially Sam. Watt, did you see the pictures and the videos of Caroline? I was looking at pictures of her now, yeah. I haven't seen any videos of her. The, the videos are exactly what you'd expect from how she looks. Yeah. Well, I'm seeing pictures of her and, you know, whatever. She she looks like, uh, you know, it doesn't look like someone you would expect to be running a company like this. But Well, not, not only that, I was saying that she really is, like, straight out of uh, the caricature of a female nerd. Yes. Like, in every way. Very and, much so. and, and in the videos, yeah. even more. Yeah. Like, in every way possible. It's, it's, Sometimes uh, people are what they're supposed to be. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, oh, the way it goes. You, know, you know what I wanted to talk about? I'm glad I brought this up because there was one thing I wanted to tell people. And that is, in my very early days on computer bulletin boards, I actually talked to a girl that reminds me a lot of Carolyn Ellison in looks and mannerisms. Now, back then, it was not easy to send pictures. In fact, it was very difficult because you didn't have a scanner sitting around. You you couldn't uh, snap a picture on your phone. Uh, you know, in the, the 80s, how do you send a picture? It wasn't well, impossible. I think she but- had some work done, Druff. I don't want to interrupt your story, but man, I, I, I found another picture of uh, Carolyn Ellison, and it looks like she had uh, some significant work done, like a nose job and some other stuff. What? Yeah. Worked, and that was the result. No, no. <laughs> Let me show you the. I'm gonna. I'll send you a link to. Well, sure, it's the same person. Hold on a minute. Let me make sure this is legit. Yeah, I was gonna, this. I, this looks like her, but it's a very like extra version of her. You know what I'm saying? Well, maybe it's yeah. Maybe it's photoshopped. I don't know. I like every video I've seen of hers. It's pretty much corresponding to the pictures. All right, I'm, I'm thinking this might be uh, someone else photoshopped it's it or something. It's, it's like probably this. a joke. It, it definitely, you can tell it's still her, the, but it looks like the, the oh, hot yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes, her. yes, yes. So that, that's the identical picture of someone using a filter on her. That's a, There's a lot of memes involving her. So this, this. That's impressive as shit, though. <laughs> that I mean, was that good work. Yeah, that is a significant upgrade. No, it's just, no it, it is. That, it shows that anyone can be beautiful with enough filtering. Wow. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I just saw that and then compared it to her other picture. I'm like, yeah, that's the same person, but holy yeah. shit, that's a big difference. Well, it was just wow. the, it's not even just the improved face. It was, it's yeah. also the, and the improved teeth. It's not just those two things, but the, her hair is way, way better in the 
changed yeah. picture where uh, her hair is very nice and fluffy and clean. She always has like a greasy hair look in yeah. the other pictures and videos. Well, that's just the personal hygiene. If Look, she's got enough money. If she wanted to hire a hairdresser or something, she could do all this. You can look at some of the before-after pictures of Elon. Like, Elon Musk doesn't look anything like he used to look, you know? But she, she could do it if she wanted to. Well, she didn't need money, though. She could just get, like, a 99-cent bottle of Suave and wash her hair. Yeah. That'd be I an mean, improvement. just basic hygiene would definitely yeah. help. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, any, anyway, the, the story with me was in the late 80s, there, there was a girl I was talking to from a bulletin board. Now, to be fair... This was not uh, something that was initially like a romantic relationship. We were just talking as friends, but we we talked a whole lot. And she was a smart girl, much like uh, Carolyn Ellison here. She's a smart girl, and uh, you know I could tell she was very much of the female nerd type just from talking to her. And you know I I hadn't seen her, but uh, I, I wasn't expecting like a total beauty meeting her. But, uh, you know, I, I said, look, I, she's a smart girl, and I like that, and we talk every day, and, you know, I like her personality enough to talk to her every day and find the conversations interesting. So I figured, okay, that's enough. Even if she's just kind of okay looking, you know, that'll be fine. I'll be into that. And, and then I met her in person. Fortunately, it wasn't a date. We just kind of met in a, a place where a bunch of other people were meeting, and I was, like, not attracted to her at all. Like, not even a bit. And I, I wasn't showing up with really high standards from the looks standpoint. Like, I, I was not coming in there going, oh, if she's not a 9 or 10, I'm not into it. I wasn't like that. If she was a 5, I would have been into it. But, like, I, I just wasn't attracted to her. I, like, not even a bit. And some of it was kind of the same thing as this uh, Caroline Ellison had going on. Of course, this, this girl was younger, as as was I. You know, I, we were both minors. But uh, I, I just kind of felt like there was no attributes to her to where girls will have to where you'll you'll find them attractive and as i said naked no no we didn't even get anywhere near there i like no i i I just kind of she might have had some attractive attributes you know it's possible but you know i (laughs) no i didn't want to lead her on though that was the point i i didn't like i was kind of already felt bad because we hadn't had any kind of sexual discussions on the phone or anything but i i was we, we kind of like implied to each other that we were starting to develop interest and then I met her in person, and I'm like, oh, I'm totally not attracted to her, but how do I say it? Like, I'm not going to say, hey, you know, I liked you until I met you right now. Now I'm not into you. Sorry. So I kind of just tried to ghost, and she kind of got the message and was, I know, pissed off about it. <laughs> but I, I didn't know what else to do. I kind of, like, slowly ghosted her where I, I didn't abruptly stop talking to her after meeting her because I felt that would hurt her feelings. So I kind of just, like, I, I kept talking to her but dwindled it down very quickly. But I think she realized what was going on and... From what I heard, she was pretty bitter about it. You know, I, I couldn't explain it to her that I wasn't attracted to her when I met her. When I saw the pictures of Caroline and watched her in the videos, I'm like, oh, that reminds me a lot of that girl from, like, way back then, which is more than 30 years ago now. But I was like, oh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of, like, an older version of her. Though The funny thing is, I, I actually, uh, just out of curiosity, I, I looked up the girl many years later, and she actually improved over time. Like, she was still kind of like a female nerd, but she, like, improved. So, like, had I met her many years later, I actually would have probably been attracted to her. She wasn't, like, super hot, but she was, like, decent at that point. I'll give her credit there. But at the time when I met her, I just... And I kind of felt bad. I kind of felt like I was being shallow. But I I learned. I learned over time. You, You have, like, a baseline of what, like, the 
bottom level of physical attraction you can have to someone to where you can have a relationship with them or any kind of real dating relationship with them. And if someone doesn't meet that, they just don't meet that as much as you want them to. Yeah, it's uh, no matter what kind of attraction it is, whether it's physical, mental, personality, whatever, if it's... <laughs> if in the beginning, when it's at the best it could possibly be, you, you still don't have it, like, it's not going to get any better. Right, that's, that's the I mean? other problem. Yes. Although, you're, you're right, though. Like, she could improve, you know, she could be a, a, a fixer-upper, I guess, you know, you could... But that would be kind of transforming her into something that maybe she doesn't want to be. Exactly. You know? See, I wouldn't want to do that to someone. Yeah. Like she, she, she improved yeah. on her own. It looked like years later, and that's great. But uh, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to take someone and say, "You've got to do this for me to be attracted to you." I like, I, I would never have done that then or now. So you, you, yeah, you've got to start off with some attraction. You have to have realistic standards. You can't just uh, decide you're you're going to accept the you know, the very 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 best in looks, and anything is not good enough. Otherwise, you'll be alone forever unless you're. Uh, Either uh, super good-looking yourself or super rich yourself, and they date you for that reason. Otherwise, you have to look at what's realistic and then go from there. And you know, I am someone who always found uh, personality and intelligence and, and, and other aspects that are non-physical to be important and attractive. And without those, I can't really be attracted to the person either. I, I could be in the very short term, but not much beyond that. Uh, it, it's just something that I wouldn't be satisfied being with someone who is very physically attractive, but I just wasn't into their personality at all. I, I couldn't stand that after a very short time. So you, you You'd really have, have an amazing couple of months. No, I wouldn't. But even that's be, about I, it. I, I couldn't. You know what I'm saying? No, I, no, really, I couldn't go like more than a few days before going crazy. Days? Yeah, really, ah. I, I couldn't. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the end of our FTX coverage for the week. This was taken from our regular radio broadcast from November 13th and 14th, 2022, and separated into its own special program. The rest of the episode will be made available shortly on the same podcasting platforms. But I just wanted to split it up into two parts since this whole FTX matter is such a big deal and I know a lot of people will be looking for it on its own. We will be back to regular coverage, regular radio shows next week. Probably won't be splitting it into two, but I'm sure I will have updates on this FTX story as it unfolds. It's very odd in several ways. So you had three plus hours to listen to regarding FTX and then you'll have the rest of our coverage fairly shortly to listen to stories about other matters in poker and gambling all from the same night but just split into two see this way I can take credit for two shows when I only did one I could act like I put two nights into this when I only put one I can make it look like I'm recording more often than I really am. It's the lazy man's way of putting out multiple episodes. It's kind of like on TV when they would produce an episode that was like 70 minutes of content and then would just stretch it somehow into a two-parter that takes two hours to broadcast. And they'd stuff it with recaps and commercials and filler. And you'd say, what the hell did I just watch? It didn't feel like a two-hour episode. 
Well, this was over a three-hour episode without filler. But don't worry, we'll have plenty of filler next time. See you in a few days, and shalom. Shalom.